Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 81 Night of the Living Dead Hey, wake up, it's COD zombie mode, woohoo! Someone shouted in Drake's earpiece, jolting him awake. His first instinctive reflex was to roll over and flat his tummy where he would lay it and aimed his weapon out of the embrasure before his brain caught up with his actions. The freck? He checked his comms and realized the voice comms came from Merle's, and just as he was about to reply, a whistle blew and he found the outside of the walls lit by glaring spotlights, and scores of shadowy figures were moving amongst the passages. Drake! Kant appeared beside him. It's a night attack. Looks like the undead. Kant looked calm as he told his piece of news to Drake, who stared at him in surprise. Undead. You mean like zombies and vampires? Drake asked back, ripping open the covers of his telescope and peering into the brightly lit passageway. He focused on the moving figure and saw it in the glare of the spotlights. A shambling figure with its left arm missing at the elbow, while the other arm raised towards the walls. The skin has shrunk away from its body, making the body look skeletal, while those rotten patches of flesh with tiny white maggots wiggled could be seen in the eyeless face of the dead Empire soldier gaped its open maw, biting at the air, screaming a cry which Drake couldn't hear. What the freck? Jake jerked his head back from the scope, using his gloved hand to rub his eyes, wondering if he was still sleeping. Zombies? Vampire. Kant looked confused and shook his head. The walking dead, yes. Damn. Bowles was right. This was bloody zombie mode, Drake thought. Switch out the M3, we're using the M1 instead. Kant nodded and unslung his rifle on his back. I'll take Tower 1 as he trotted off towards the other end of the enclosed tower. Drake replaced the scope covered on the carefully placed M3 Mage Killer to the side before picking up his customized M1 and laid back in the prone on the raised platform, aiming out on the approaching horde. His and Con's M1 Mage Locks were the sharpshooter variant, factory zeroed, and a game with a six times magnifying scope and a flash of pressure. Headshot, Moles' voice came again from the comms, making Drake grit his teeth. So this is how you want to play it, jerk, he thought as he fired the approaching horde, aiming at their heads. Thorn was packing up his loose items in the academy workshop when a sudden heavy and frantic footsteps echoed down the hallway outside. He glanced at the digital clock on the wall, showing the time to be 01.13am, and frowned, wondering who else was still in the school after so late. Magister Thorn. He's heard someone crying outside. He poked his head out of the room and saw a couple of humans in black uniforms, which worked as peacekeepers were wearing. One of them ducked his head into another workshop, calling, Are you here, sir? Yes. Thorn called out to them, making them pause and heading towards him excitedly. What can I help you police officers with? He remembers the captain was the rest calling them police officers. Finally, we found you. Both the men looked relieved. We need you to come with us, sir. What happened? Thorn looked confused. Where do you want me to go? I still haven't packed up my stuff. 
There's no time, sir. You need to get the pass, sir. Both men look grim. They need your help there. One kilometer east of the Sawtooth Pass. Empire Mass Grave. Urka grunted as they glared out in the cover of the forest, looking at the walls being magically illuminated. The spirits won't be able to sneak up on them. They fight surprisingly well for soft skins. The elder kept to the side, either ignoring Urka or not hearing what Urka said. Urka turned and glanced at the elder, his ears catching something from the hooded cloak. As he took a closer step, he caught a few snatches of whispering coming from the hood. The whispers made his head hurt, his skin crawl and goosebumps raising all over his body. He quickly retreated away from the elder shaman, leaving the elder alone. His warriors were also kept wary distance away from the elder, more so from the gathered dead at the sight of their former graves. Their burning torches sat flickering, casting shadows amongst the dead, making the shadows appear to be stalking the orkin, making them uneasy and restless. Oka peered through the precious eyeglass, which had been looted at some point in the time of the past, its former owner no longer around to protest its use. The eyeglass was brought Urka seemingly closer to the Battle of the Pass. The echoing of thunder could be caused thundersticks rolled down from the mountains, scattering the sleeping virums, which screeched their disapproval and dive-bombed the Orkin, and dive-bombed the Orkin and gathered dead with their poop as they flew away. Urka ignored the splats of goo and concentrated on the battle. Nodding in satisfaction as the dead reached the walls and cursed when balls of fire incinerated them into char. Do something, he turned and instructed the elder. We are losing the spirits to their magic. A sigh escaped from the hood of the elder. I've done all I can. If the spirits cannot advance into the walls, there is nothing much I can do. Bring the spirits back. Don't waste the spirits' bodies. Urka ordered, keep them here first, while I go talk to the Skofskin lord. The elder gave a bow and appeared to start whispering something. Urka quickly beat a retreat with his warriors, leaving the elder alone in the clearing with the dead. After leaving behind the elder, Urka felt better. He might not fear swords and arrows, but the chaos, magic, and dread of the elder frightened him to his bones. As he neared the camp of the softskins, dozens of softskin stentries surrounded them, and self-important bearing softskin wearing a ridiculous-looking plume on his helmet, ornate plate, and blue cloak. Halt! What business do you have? The softskin sneered, puffing up his chest, trying to look imposing, which was funny as Orkins towered over every elf by a good twenty to thirty centimeters. Not to mention, Orkus' biceps were as large as the elves' head. Orca just stared at the officer and spoke slowly and simply, Orca here to see Big Lord. The officer tried to stare down Orca but failed miserably, and to cover up his embarrassment, he shoved an unfortunate sentry. Go inform the Duke our guests are here to speak with him. Go. The sentry stumbled off into the darkness, and Orca waited impatiently for the sentry to return. Both sides glared at each other, fingering their sword hilts and spears nervously. They waited in the dark. Finally, the sentry returned with someone in tow. Urka stood up from the tree root as he was sitting on and stepped forward. Ah, Lord Urka! The newcomer greeted Urka like a long-lost friend with the smiles and laughter. Well let, my lord. Urka here to see the big lord. 
Oka spoke in common, the unfamiliar words rolling off his tongue like sand. Need to talk, make plans, he explained with a guidedly dressed flunky. I'm sorry to say that my Lord Strum is currently resting and wishes that no one disturb his rest. Lord Flunky responded with a deep bow. My greatest apologies. Could my lord please return first and come back when the sun breaks? Oka fumed with rage, but he held it down. There was no point in provoking the softskins for now. He glanced up at the dark sky and mentally calculated roughly how long more till the dawn comes. Oka looked at the bowing Flunky and said, Oka, wait here. Bring food and drink. The flunky straightened his back and looked at Urker in the eye. My lord, that is not proper. It'll be best for you to return to your camp. Urker, just stubborn, sat down back on the tree root, staring at the manservant back and repeated, Food and drink. Urker, wait here for Big Lord to wake up. The flunky, after staring at Urker for a while, gave in and nodded. Would my lord prefer if I bring the chair for you to rest, blankets against the cold? Oka snorted. Gold? He glanced at contempt at the soft-skinned soldiers dressed in cloaks and thick clothes. Who'd a drink now? Bowing again, the flunky returned to the camp, and shortly after returned to several servants in tow, carrying plates of cold verum and skins of ale. He bowed again before leaving and said, I will return when my lord Strum has awoken up. Should you have other wishes, please inform Captain of the Guard, and we'll do our best to accommodate your wishes. Urka nodded, waving the manservant away. He grabbed the entire roast worm and bit down, chomping down on the bird, including the bones, before gesturing his warriors to help themselves. His warriors gathered around the food and drinks with glee and sat down, feasting on the food and drinks jousting and joking amongst themselves, ignoring the hungry looks cast by the soft-skinned sentries. Oka burked and smacked his lips as he finished the second skin of ale. He had to admit that the soft-skinned's culinary skills are quite good, and so is their brewing skills. Satisfied, Oka laid back against the tree trunk. Some of you keep watch, he told the warriors. I don't trust the soft-skins at all. The warriors nodded and started arguing amongst themselves who would start the watch first, while Urka settled down comfortably and closed his eyes and rested. Highway to Sawtooth Mountain Pass Thorn held on to his dear life as the open-top jeep racing along the road towards the pass. The wind blew strongly against his face, whipping the untied hair wildly. He randomly thought that should cut his hair short, like the humans, while gripping the handlebars set in the frame of the jeep tightly. Despite the early morning, he noticed that they had passed by several half-tracks going up and down the road, which normally at this time there should be no vehicles at all. He wondered what was happening to the pass. He wondered if it was going to rain, and how are they going to keep dry in a vehicle like this with no cover? as he heard thunder rumbling in the distance. As the jeep neared the pass, that was when Thorn realized that the thunders were actually the mage knocks firing the pass. He yelled over the wind to the driver, Are those mage knocks? Are we under attack again? Yes, sir, the driver responded, keeping his eyes on the road. They need you to help them with something. Thorn lapsed into silence, thinking that if they wanted him, they meant something magical was happening and they needed his brains for it. He shivered in the biting wind, 
as they had travelled over an hour in human time, cursing himself for not bringing along a cloak. Finally, the jeep entered the camp at the pass, passing by two gates before stopping at a third gate. Sir, this is the furthermost I could go. Someone will bring you inside. The driver said to Thorn, who thanked the driver for the ride and got down on the shaky legs. Almost immediately, two elves dressed in a spotted uniform approached him. Sir, please follow us. One of them spoke respectfully and stood at a parade rest, waiting for Thorn to follow them. Thorn nodded, lead the way, and followed the two shoulders past the gate and onto another jeep, waiting on the inside of the gate. Less than five minutes they had arrived at a squat, bare and grey concrete structure built into the side of the mountain. The sound of gunfire was a lot louder here, indicating that he was nearer to the walls. The two soldiers gestured for him to follow them into the door at the side of the structure. He noticed a lot of guards and checkpoints before entering a huge room which resembled a bridge on the Iron Castle, with several huge display screens dominating the room. Major Frank looked up and the two escorting marines saluted by raising their right hand to the side of their head. Palms straight, fingertips in the right eyebrow. Frank saluted back and dismissed them and waved Thorn over. Welcome to the pit. End of chapter. Chapter 82. War Plans Thorn looked around the busy chamber and headed down to the short flight of stairs to the center of the pit. Following the way of the humans, he shook Frank's outstretched hand. How are you doing? Good, sir, Frank answered, smiling at the disheveled old man, who always reminded him of Albert Einstein. Greetings to you, Sergeant Pike. Thorn reached out and shook Pike's hand, too. So what is happening? Well, sir, we hope that you can tell us, Frank responded, gesturing Thorn to view the display. A playback video of the attack of the undead was played, making Thorn appear intently at the images. They appear to be undead, raised from the grave by dark magic, Thorn said as he studied the imagery on the display. Frank and Pike stood silently waiting for Thor to continue. Hmm, the Orkin are quite the proficient in the dark arts. Is there a way that we can stop them? Pike asked. We found that destroying the head and burning the bodies help. Yes, yes. From my understanding, the spirits inhabit the dead bodies and controls the movements of the host body through some way, but using the head as a container of sorts. Thorn rubbed his snowy white beard as he recollected his scarce knowledge of dark magic. By destroying the head, the spirits lose control of the body, or if the body is too badly damaged, the spirits depart voluntarily from their hosts. Is there a necromancer raising the dead? Frank asked. Necromancer? Thorn frowned and the unfamiliar English word. You mean a spirit caster? What is a spirit caster? Pike asked before Frank could open his mouth. Mm, from what I know, a spirit caster is someone with the ability to talk to spirits and command them. Thorn explained to the humans. They do not really revive the dead. What they do is just call the spirits to inhabit the bodies of the dead. Their spirits use the bodies as a host. I see. Pike nodded and gave a brief explanation of what a necromancer was to Thorn. Hmm. So spirit casters are quite similar to your necromancers, Thorn exclaimed excitedly. I would like to borrow that book your captain has. Magister, please, we have more pressing issues now. Frank stopped Thorn from going off track. 
Is there a way of some spells that can stop the dead? Also, can the spirits control the living body? Hmm, I need to do some research, but from what I know, they can only control a dead body. Thorn furrowed his forehead, and all my books which I brought are still over at the Academy's library. Frank looked at Pike with a dismayed look. Damn, all right, we'll send you back immediately. If you find anything useful, please inform us directly. Frank said, gesturing to the marine guard at the door to come over. Private, bring the magister to the motor pool and have one of the drivers return him back to the academy in the best possible speed. Frank gave the marine the instructions, who acknowledged the order. Sir, I will assign someone to be with you. He will have some communication equipment so you can contact us directly. Frank told Thorne, who nodded in understanding, while Pike picked up a headset and made a call. Frank nodded to the private who then led Thorne out of the command center and towards the motor pool. As Thorne left the pit, what a waste of time. It's a mistake not to have a direct line of communication to Thorne. We will need to rectify that. Thorne followed the soldier in a row of sheds where a few of the jeeps and half-tracks were parked under. The marine handed Thorne over to a driver who directed Thorne to a jeep parked at the side. Seated in the rear was the largest human Thorn had ever seen. He had his sleeves rolled up, displaying massive biceps. His armor appeared to be custom-made to fit his frame, and a mage lock that looked tiny sat beside his shoulder. Does he have orkin blood? Thorn wondered as he climbed aboard the front seat. Lance Corporal Bartley, the giant at the rear, greeted Thorn as he sat in the jeep. I'll be your escort, sir, he said in a deep rumble. Well met, Lance Corporal. Thorne returned Bartley's greeting and waited for Bartley to say something. After an awkward silence, Thorne faced the front and cleared his throat uncomfortably. Just nice. A human driver hopped in, gave a smile and greeted both of them, and started the engine and drove off towards the city. Entrance to the 1st Valor Regiment of Swords, the Duke's own. Oka snoozed loudly with several of his warriors who sprawled all round the littered remains of the supper they had. A few of the Orkans stood watch, their mood bad as they lost a game of fingers to their comrades. Thus, they had to stand guard. The Empire sentries stared with disgust at the scene of the sleeping Orkin, talking amongst themselves about how barbaric they were. The bored Orking, standing, watching entertain themselves by throwing pieces of bone from the remains of their supper at the Albert sentries, betting amongst themselves to see who can hit anyone, much to the chagrin of the Empire sentries. Shortly after the sky brightened and the first rays of sun cast over the land, the same manservant appeared at the gate and greeted the still-snoring Urka. His warrior gave Urka a strong smack to the shoulder, who woke up and punched the unlucky Orkin in the face, much to the amusement of the rest. Urka hawked and spit his dry throat before gesturing the flunky to lead the way. Those Orkin weren't still asleep or brutally awakened by brutal kicks to the face or groin, inciting a good-natured laughter amongst the Orkin. The Empire soldiers sneered as they entered the camp. The hostility and disgust could be plainly seen on the elves' faces. Oka and his warriors ignored all the dark looks and insults thrown at them as they swaggered their way past the rows and rows of tents before arriving at the inner stockade, heavily guarded by fully armored-plated soldiers. Oka grunted with approval at the look of these heavily armored guards gave. His warrior instincts recognized them as veterans of hundreds of life-and-death battles. 
He's left his warriors behind and followed the flunky into the only tent in sight. The huge tent, with its midnight blue color and dark shiny luster, stood in the middle of the encampment, surrounded by a wooden palisade wall and ringed by guards. Oka felt his skin tingling slightly as his natural senses alerted him to a strong presence of magic. The flunky lifted the tent's entrance, causing the gathered morning dew to trickle down the rich-looking material. Oka ducked his head and hunched down as he squeezed his large build into the entrance. The first thing he noticed was the huge table in the middle of the tent, occupied by several softskins, some dressed for battle while others in coats of robes, while an elf dressed simply in a white silk shirt and black pants sat at the head of the table, breaking fast with a variety of dishes laid in the table before him. The flunky gestured to him the opposite end of the table, where another servant stood waiting for the dark-colored chair. Sit and join me in breaking fast. The rich and mellow voice came from the elf sitting and eating at the head of the table. Oka nodded and sat down heavily on the offered chair, causing it to creak alarmingly. His bared feet enjoying the feel of the thick layer of carpets and fur. The small army of servants soon arrived and piled dishes after dishes on the table in front of Urka. Urka reached out and grabbed a large slab of ham and chewed bone, ignoring the fat juices dribbling down his chin. The table of soft skin stared at him like they had never seen an orkin eat before. Urka ignored the looks and just grabbed whatever food took his fancy, washing it down with silver goblet of watered wine. One of the soft skins dressed in robes placed his eating fork to the knife down, patting his mouth with a cloth before declaring he had enough. The rest followed suit, only the soft skins dressed in armor continued feasting on the food. Lord Sturm speared the last piece of roast when eating fork, chewing the meat while watching the orkin called Urka attack the food like a starving man. His men had reported the results of the battle using the summoned undead, and he had wondered what this barbarian chief from the steppes wanted from him now. Finally, after demolishing most of the food on the table, including the untouched portions of the softskins, Oka gave a satisfied burp, causing some of the softskins to cough and gag slightly. Be Oka, war leader, band of the hand, greets Big Lord Sturm. Oka stood up and held his palm out, facing Sturm, at what the head of the table in a greeting. Well met, Oka, I am Lord Sturm. Duke of Fallowfall and Lord General of the Army of the South. Sturm returned a greeting while still seated. Why have you come? Urka needs your soldiers to help fight. Urka said bluntly, much to the surprise of the elves. An orkin asking for help? The Commander Ellison of the 3rd Fallowfall Regiment of Swords asked mockingly. I thought you orkin were very tough. Orkin tough, but walls tougher. Orca admitted, Orca here to plan with Big Lord. Sturm sat back and studied the Orkin, looking intently back at him. He recruited them for the combat strength and also their knowledge of dark magic. He was hoping that the Orkin would waste their strength fighting against the rebels, making subjugating them later on. What do you propose? Send slave army attack in day, Orca said simply. Orca's spirits attack at night. No sleep for enemy. Sturm raised his eyebrows in surprise with Oka's suggestion. He was getting more and more impressed with his Orkin, who could come up with such an idea. 
using his slave army of 12,000 to wear the rebels down in the day, while the Orkin and dead army attacked at night to keep the defenders occupied while keeping their own main forces fresh to the attack the walls when the rebels' morale and stamina had been worn completely down. Interesting, it could work. Sturm leaned forward. Tell me more about your plans. He invited Urka to continue on. Slave army stormed the walls in the day. Stone throwers destroyed the walls. Urka explained. Night, Orkin shaman brings spirits up from the dead, attack the walls. More stone throwers help out. When walls destroyed, all army attacked together. Urka smashed his palms together, mimicking destroy the enemy. Won't that benefit the Orkins more, using the dead slaves for dark magic? Commander Ellison sneered. I don't trust the Orkin as far as I can throw them. Urka gave Elosin a look before turning his attention back to Sturm and gave a shrug. Out to Big Lob to believe or not. Sturm frowned. It was true that his troops dying will boost the ranks of the Orkin undead army, but the rebels are dug in pretty hard. If Sturm followed Urka's plan, he has to come out with a counter for Urka's undead army, in case Urka suddenly turned on him. All right, the war leader, Urka. I'll discuss this with my men first. Return to your camp and wait for my answer. In the meantime, I'll move my siege engines forward to support your attacks from the walls. Sturm assured Urka, keep up the attacks first. Urka stood up and nodded, yes, big lord, and followed the flunky out of the tent. My lord, a tall, thin elf with polished black-blue plate mail, stood up and addressed Sturm. It is not wise to bolster the strength of the Orkin undead army using our own men, even if they are slaves. Hear, hear. Commander Ellison raised a goblet and Commander Astra of the 1st Valifall Regiment of Swords. Those low-life dogs are just using this opportunity to strengthen themselves. If I may, the battle mage Dular interrupted, I have a suggestion that might just well tip the scales in our favor. End of chapter. Chapter 83. What's next? All right, settle down, people. Commander Ford called the meeting into order. The conference room, full of both humans and owls, quieted down and rose as Captain Blake strolled in. Captain on deck, the marine guard holding the door open, yelled. At ease, Blake sat down in his customary chair after returning the salutes gave to him by his officers. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard the passes under siege by the Empire forces for the past week by now. Blake acted as if he didn't notice the glares given to him from the elves, especially from Princess Shireen. Blake gave a small cough. We deemed that it wasn't wise to release news of the siege to the public as we have everything under control for now. He gave a quick peek at Shireen's direction, who turned her head away. He sighed. A quick update to those not privy to the news up in the pass. Currently, we are still holding the pass with 44 injured marines and zero deaths. Intel has estimated the enemy deaths reaching over a thousand. A display screen where Frank and Pike could be seen nodding as they entered into the meeting via video conference. Not counting the undead, we also destroyed two of their super siege engines. The super siege engines, which the marines called them, was a giant ballista twice the size of a mature land dragon. Made out of bones and tendons of dragons, magical runes were also engraved in the construct, further strengthening it. 
Land dragons were attached to the winch which winded the loading mechanism, and it was powerful enough to launch half-ton projectiles over 500 meters away. Marine snipers ravaged those loaders and gunners of the two super siege engines from far away when they first appeared at the edge of the forest, and attempts to recruit the super siege engines were met with accurate and deadly fire. It was still till later in the night when the undead came out that they were able to recover both siege engines. The first operation involving the 101st ATI was a great success. They destroyed the two super siege engines and a large number of undead, Frank reported from the over the video call. 101st ATI? Shireen questioned. What is that? Blake nodded as Frank in the video, who then explained. The 101st Arcane Tactics and Intervention is the 101st ATI for short, is a special operations task force created to combat against magic using magic. From our volunteers from the Marines who were displayed an aptitude for magic, they undergo further training from recon to special operations and infiltration. Frank continued, they went through enhanced combat magic theory courses, which are a fusion of human knowledge and natural science. Physics and magic are taught to help with Dr. Sharon and Magister Thorne. Each member of the 101st ATI is highly skilled in stealth infiltration, direct magic combat, and anti-magic countermeasures. Frank proudly introduced the 101st as he was the brainchild of its creation. We are planning a new operation to eliminate the source of the dead forces once and for all. If successful, the battle of the past could be said to be over. Frank finished his part. Magister Thorne? Blake invited Thorne to say his piece. <clears throat> Regarding the undead, the books I have did not cover much on the black or dark magics, as it is taboo magic and most spells or literature involving the dark arts are destroyed when discovered. Thorne explained, but I have managed to find small fragments of a diary of a court magician hundreds of years ago, describing their fight against the undead. Thorne skillfully manipulated the keypad in front of him and scanned the images of an ancient yellow parchment appeared on the room's display. I translated as much as I can of the old language as possible, and here is what it says. A translated text appeared below the scanned image in English. Fought over a fortnight with the cursed dead, numbering in the hundreds. My vanguard of brave warriors gave their blood to open the path of the spirit caster, and after several bouts of spell weaving, I stand victorious. Yet the dead still roam and hunger for flesh of the living. Is that all? Chief Matt asked. Defeating the spirit caster here doesn't drop the dead. It doesn't tell us how to stop the dead at all. Thought apologized. This is all from the diary, but we have deduced that there might be a magical anchor instead for the spell to keep reviving the dead creatures. If we can prove it, destroying that magical anchor will end the dead once and for all. That's where the hundred first come in. We will insert them in a stealthy, and their mission objective is to eliminate the spurcaster or necromancer and find evidence of the magic anchor and destroy it. Frank said, details of the operation will be released after the execution. The people within the room started to mumble amongst themselves, till Ford stood up and cleared his throat loudly. All right, let's move on to the next agenda, morale. Ford continued the meeting. Currently, the morale at the pass is pretty low due to the constant attacks and the psychology of the exposure of undead magic. 
We are open to any suggestions and ways to improve morale, Blake said. This will be a long siege as we do not have any manpower nor the resources for a counteroffensive. How about a VIP visit? Captain and the princess can go to a tour and pass the help boost morale, Quartermaster Chen suggested. Okay, what else? Ford asked as he took down notes. Song and dance? Matt asked, having some concert or performance. Can we just blast music like a radio talk show in the past? Dr. Sharon added. We can just use it in both the city and the pass. We can also allow family members to dedicate songs to the Marines fighting in the pass. It should help a lot, psychologically speaking. All good ideas. Ford rapidly wrote down the suggestions. After a round of discussions later, Blake came to a final conclusion. All right, we will need to create a few departments for spreading news and increasing morale for the masses through the means of media like a talk show. Princess, can your people share their music for us to record? Or more popular, the better, Blake asked. Also, can you hire some people with talent for storytelling to be the radio talk show hosts? Shireen nodded as she took down notes with a ballpoint pen on notepad. When do you need all of these? As soon as possible, Blake replied, before turning to Chief Gale and Chief Matt. You two, please come up with a simple working receiver and transmitter for mass production and broadcasting towers. Keep our advanced communication strictly for government and military usage only. Sir, also we would like to recommend the radios and communications devices be installed in the academy. We found out that getting Madge the Thorn to travel up to the pass and only to have him return to the academy for his research is wasting too much of his and our resources, Frank pointed out. If that right we could communicate directly, we would have not wasted more than three hours running up and down. Gail, Matt, you heard that? Blake asked the two chiefs, who nodded in confirmation. Anything else? Yes, sir, Frank said. My two guns are still not working. Reasons? Blake raised his eyebrows. He shouldn't have to deal with these details. Matt answered. The power conductors are discharging an unusually large amount of electricity each time the electromagnetic guns are fired. We had a few incidents during the testing that the gunnery crew with techs who got electrocuted, but so far none serious conditions. Blake closed his eyes and sighed. So what is being done? We are testing several theories and taking the guns apart to see what went wrong during the modifications. Matt admitted, until we fix the issues, the guns can't be used, as it is much more dangerous to the gunners. I understand. Send me a detailed report on that. Put the priority to fixing the guns, Blake said. Frank, I'm sorry, but till the problem is solved, your guns are grounded. Frank nodded. Unhappiness could be seen on his face. Yes, sir. Okay, next. Resources and production. Blake instructed next. Princess? Shireen, dressed in a pair of ivory robes, wrapped around a slender waist and tied on a sash ending in a ribbon, stood up, gave a small bow to the gathered audience before starting her report. A current expenditure of black powder ammunition is slightly over 40% of stored reserves. Our production of ammunition is hampered by the lack of resources from the saltpeter mines. We will need more mines or enlarging our existing mine to increase the output of the nitre if we are to meet our current needs. At this rate of usage, our reserves of ammunition will be depleted in two weeks, not counting the new production. If we add it, it will only give us another additional week, Shireen reported, causing the room to break out in heated discussions. Quiet down! Ford glared at everyone from his seat. 
Let the princess finish. Thank you, Commander. As during the whole winter, the Fabrators have been focusing on producing mage locks and military equipment to outfit the soldiers. I hope that this season they could be used to produce tools for mining, farming, and basic necessities for the people. To date, we only have a single saltpeter mine running at the moment. Surveying teams have actually found several deposits of zinc, copper, and loads of iron within the caves in the southern cliffs, located near the saltpeter mine. She highlighted the area on a map as she displayed the briefing screen. Now that spring is here, workers will be able to start clearing the land around the resources and also build proper roads, but we will require troops to help protect the workers from wild creatures and possible goblin raids now that the winter is past. Frank interrupted. We do not have excess manpower now for protection of the workers. All the marines are tied down defending the pass, and the next batch of recruits will take at least three months to graduate. Can we cut short the training? Shireen asked. We really need those mines running for the industries that are starting up all over the city, and there is only so much material left from the Iron Castle. Shireen and a selected few knew about how humans came to this world, and the Iron Castle was actually a starship. If you want to compromise equality for quantity, Frank said bluntly, I will not recommend that, that I'd rather have the men properly trained than be some half-frick soldier. Noted Major, no need for such words. Blake stepped in, giving an eye of warning to Frank, who blushed and apologized. Shireen nodded and grew up with two brothers who had heard enough cuss words to not be affected by them. Then how about a police? Can we tap into their manpower? Second Lieutenant Mike Jacobs, ex-head of security, currently now the chief of police, spoke. I can only spare like 20 to 30 men. That's about 30% of my total manpower. That should be enough for now, Shireen said. I would like to propose to also train the workers and assault militia, so that if any trouble occurs, at least they could fight and defend themselves. We could make them into a reserve police force, Mike offered, so at least in times of trouble, we can call upon them to help with any problems in the city. Sounds good, Blake agreed. Mike, I want you to also start recruitment for more permanent police officers. Captain, Shireen cut in, we are currently running out of manpower for everything from miners, farms, land, clearing, soldiers and skilled workers for the few factories. We need more people in the long run. I know, but where else can we get more people? Blake asked, looking around the table, and everyone was looking at each other for ideas. More sex? Someone joked, causing the most of the room to burst out laughing. I know from where, sir, Pike spoke into the video. We can try free the Empire Slave Army and rope them into our side. End of chapter. Chapter 84. Arcane Tactics and Intervention Good morning, Marines! A sweet and cheerful voice echoed down Sawtooth Mountain Pass. Hey, this is not a test, it's rock and roll, from the pass to no man's land. The voice came from the speaker mounted on a tall wooden pole. We got a song dedicated from Mrs. Montery to her son, Private Ladian, and the brave Marines fighting in the pass to protect us from the big, bad empire. Her message is... Stay safe and love you always, Mom. And here's Credence Clearwater Revival, Fortunate Son, for the boys in Hell's Gate. Enjoy. 
Rock and roll music started playing from the speakers after the announcement. Mills hired his mage knock like a guitar and jammed along with the song, while the others tapped their feet and nodded their feet in rhythm to the song. Surprisingly, the elves really took to rock and roll from the humans' music archives. Oh, frick, Mills moaned as the whistle blew across the wall. Here they come again. He propped up against the firing slits, peering at the clouds of smoke appearing in the passage, littering with discarded weapons and bodies. A ragtag band of Empire soldiers charged past the ruins of barbed wires and barricades, wearing mismatched pieces of armor and wielding swords and shields. Small spots of magical smoke erupted from here and there, concealing the charging soldiers. While the defending marines held their fire, waiting for the targets to appear before firing. The wary marines had been fighting in the past for ten days now, the men rotating between resting at the rear of encampments and fighting in the front lines. The pass was now known as Hell's Gate by the Marines and the public as they received news from the new broadcasting stations and portable radios. The public response to the attacks by the Empire was shock and anger, followed by an overwhelming support of the fighting Marines and items such as handcrafted gloves and socks were donated to the front. But the Marines, as they faced off the dead and living alike, they themselves slowly became numb like the zombies that they were fighting against. The constant attacks both in the day and the night tested the marines' mental and physical strength. The nightly ghastly moans and howls of the dead seeped the morale of the marines, causing them to break down mentally. Even the original human marines were affected, though mildly, thanks to the mental conditioning done to Earth. Just as the day before, command had come up with a new department called the Armed Forces Entertainment Service, or AFES, to help boost morale using music and news to the masses. A team of technicians had come up and set a few broadcasting towers around the pass and the base, after which music was blasted through day and night, drowning out the cries of the dead. Ever since the installation of the broadcasting towers, the Marines' morale soared as popular music from both human and elves were played, and during certain times of day, messages from family members of the Marines were played on air, making some of the tough soldiers cry and others smile. And the sassy female voice from the broadcaster made the men laugh with her antics over the air and fantasized how she looked like. With the background music blasting loud enough to cut through the war cries and gunfire of the mage knocks, Mills sang along with the lyrics of the chorus of the song, It ain't me, it ain't me, I ain't no millionaire's son, no. It ain't me, it ain't me, I ain't no fortunate son, no, no. While aiming and firing, almost everyone around Mills was doing the same, either screaming the song lyrics or just humming along. After a while, the Empire Slave Army had enough and retreated, owning the jeers and taunts from the Marines. Come on, come back, Mills yelled at the back of the retreating troops. I still haven't had enough fun yet. He turned to his section and ordered, All right, those clowns will be back again. Take this time to clean your arms, and drink some water and check your ammo. And for God's sake, keep those helmets on. The radio ran Leb Zeppelin's immigrant song as rocks half the size of a jeep flew over from the cover of the dug-in wooden shields, firing from the siege engines hiding behind them and the rocks startled landing around the walls, sending clouds of rock and dust into the air while the hardened marines hid within the fortified walls.
Specialist Sergeant Trieria Lotus of the 101st Arcane Tactics and Intervention checked his gear as he and his team Claymore 1 gathered in the briefing room inside the mountain. He and his men wore the modified Mark VI right armor, additional heat form lamented plywood and 2mm thick steel plates as strategic locations of the armor. They carried a variety of weaponry, from swords to black powder shotguns, silenced mage locks and the latest weapons out of R&D, the M2 Mage Spitter. The M2 Mage Spitter was specifically designed for rapid-fire assault carbine. The body of the rifle was made out of stamped steel and the grips were made out of native wood. The fire selector enables the firer to switch between safe, single and automatic fire. Weighing in at 3.3 kilograms empty, a total length of 1 meter with a barrel length of 45 centimeters, it has the capacity of 30 rounds of 6.5 millimeter hulled a scythe patterned detachable magazines. Muzzle velocity measured in at 607 meters per second and the effective range of 270 meters with a rated fire of 320 rounds per minute on full automatic. To enable the gas-operated systems to work properly, two gas tubes placed at the sides of the main barrel channeled the expanding gas from the firing cartridge against two wind ruins that were inserted at the front. The expanding gas then collided with both wind ruins, creating a pocket of air, which created a much-needed force of the gas-to-blowback system used to conventional 20th-century rifles. To increase the efficiency of the gas trap style mechanism, a muzzle booster came installed at the muzzle of the rifle barrel. It provided additional energy to boost the energy provided by the recording gases. This boost provides higher rates of fire and more reliable operation of gas operated systems. Using a fusion of technology and magic, the 101st made use of the runes carved into their equipment to strengthen and reduce the weight of spells to enhance and buff the abilities like speed, strength, agility, endurance, etc. Defensive spells were woven into the armor and shields, making them able to tank damage from both physical and magical attacks. Offensive spells were even imbued into their ammunition, increasing damage dealt or even creating special effects like explosions or flash freezing an area. Tyria ensured his customized M2 is tightly strapped against his chest. His rifle magazine secured jungle style with dual clamps. It was customized with a two times red dot sight, a board grip, a laser sighting device and a silencer attached. Another member of Team 1 carried a huge ruin-reinforced ballistic shield. His double-barreled sword or shotgun holstered in his right tight. A crisscross bondolier with shotgun shells covered his burly armored chest. Officer on deck, the nearest Team 1 specialist yelled as he stood at attention when the door opened and Major Frank, Master Sergeant Pike entered and a first lieutenant with an intelligence markings on his uniform followed behind. The rest of the team of seven stopped all work and stood at attention. Daddies, Frank waved them down. Already, he looked at the seven owls standing fully decked out in weapons and heavy armor. All right, gather round then. The lieutenant directly plugged in the data stick into the display of the room. Now you guys surely could have guessed about this mission by now, the lieutenant said. I'm First Lieutenant Tabor of Fleet Intelligence. We will be working closely together in the future. He introduced himself and pointed to the two on the map displayed on the screen. Primary Objective Alpha, take out the Necromancer. 
the map zoomed into a blob of darkness in the middle of the group of orcs. UAV recon flights spotted this anomaly a few days ago. Tavar highlighted the inky black blob. Intel had rerun this previous video during and before the attacks and found have recorded a few instances. The next few images switch to different locations of the forest when different timestamps stating the time and date, showing a similar black blob on the group of Orkins. We suspect that this fellow here is the boss of the orcs. Davar pointed to an orc significantly larger than the rest, without any adorations on his body and armor. We spotted him a few times staying at the rear with his humanoid-shaped dark blob with him. Another image showed a very sharp and clear image of both the giant orc and a dog blob behind him. Magister Thorne's assessment of the blob is a sort of anti-magical scrying spell to prevent others from discerning it. We test it with a similar spell and it does appear to show us a blurry blob in our cameras and sensors. So we are 100% certain that this is our target, Tavor explained to the room. Eliminate target alpha. If possible, recover any intel or artifacts in relation to the target for command to study. Tavar listed out their objectives. Objective Beta. If after eliminating the primary target and the undead is still operational, search and destroy possible magical anchor in the vicinity of these two locations. Tavar displayed a top-down map of the forest with areas highlighted with blue and red. Areas marked in blue are suspected empire forces, while red are areas with orc activities. He pointed to an area highlighted in red. There is an 8% chance of the necromancer's living quarters to be located here. And here is where the mass graves of the empire soldiers were buried. The primary target will most likely appear in these locations during certain timings of the night, most likely to observe and control the undead army. Another three locations were highlighted. We want a clean kill here. Cut the head off, douse the body with salt and burn it. Deva started an eye to eye at the Claymore One members. This is a high priority target. Make no mistakes. Questions. What level of support are we getting? Tyria, I'm raised up. Couldn't we hit the target with a missile strike? Command doesn't want to leave it to chances. The target might have a barrier spell that negates all forms of attack. Tavar clarified, we need you guys there to ensure that the target gets taken out completely. You will have priority UAV tasking and single missile strike for emergencies. Major Frank spoke up, giving off the protests from Team Claymore 1. I know, I asked for more support, but that's all that has been tasked to you. The seven of us against 10,000 Orkins and unknown thousands of undead to kill one necromancer, someone sarcastically pointed out. And all we get is a single missile. Settle down, Pike bellowed, glaring at the unhappy elves of Claymore 1. You are the 101st elite amongst the marines. Stop your whining. I will have a full company of marines on standby, with half-tracks to pull you out if you give the word. Frank assured them. Command has their reasons for this arrangement, I am sure. All right, quit the whining. Tyria cut his team's complaints off. We will think of a way to get in and out with them knowing where we are. Isn't that what we trained for? Each team nodded. All right, we are going in and out quiet. We need to swap out some of the guns. Tavor continued. Drop the shields, grab the silence M2s, pack some more explosives for distractions. Turning to the display and looking at the map. Any intel on patrol routes and locations of sentries? He asked Tavor, who smiled. Ah... I thought you'd never ask. End 
of chapter. Chapter 85, Claymore 1 The thunder of the Magenocks echoed over the walls of the near-vertical mountain face. The twin moons appeared as two thin crescents hovering over the tall peaks of the Sawtooth Mountain. As a dark shape loomed over the peaks, narrowly missing the jagged rocks, kicking up loose rocks and dirt, the twin turboprop duck fans screamed at maximum power as was applied to them, barely allowing the modified space shuttle to clear the peaks barely with a meter or two below its belly. Several figures were strapped onto the crash seats facing each other with the pressurized cabin of the Valkyrie, renamed by the two pilots who redesigned the space shuttles into helicopters. All the radiation plating was removed from the ship and redundant systems stripped away to lighten the ship as much as possible. The cargo attachment at the rear was also stripped away. The tail section of the shuttle shortened, and after a few new modifications, the old space shuttle no longer looked like the original, becoming a stub-looking predatory flyer. Dozens of weight reduction ruins were carved into the main hull of the flyer, giving it further 25% reduction in total weight of the heavy, pig-like copter. The copter flew like a sports car despite it having no aerodynamic surface except for the stubby wings welded to the middle of the hull to provide weapon hardpoints, each suffering three weapon stations. In addition to providing lift, the large blue-gray manastone was set in the nose. Under the 10 millimeter thick armor steel plating, the mystic ruins carved into the stone, glowing dimly with an electric current that ran through it, causing the stone to project a bubble of wind resistance, similar to the giant wind wall's innate ability. To fly the copter like a grease tracks against all weather but hurricane. This is your flight captain speaking. Please put your trays in the upright position and ensure that your seatbelts are buckled. A chirpy voice came over the speakers in the red-lit cabin. If you feel the need to puke, please do so inside your helmets, as the Valkyrie does not permit vomiting in this flight cabin. Specialist Sergeant Tyria rolled his eyes at his antics of the pilot. He glanced out of the armored glass window, seeing nothing but darkness, before checking them out. Some of them were nodding off in their crash seats, catching as much needed sleep as possible while Specialist Private Hitsu sat on the other side of the bird, stared out into the, the darkness. After a short while, the pilot's voice broke the engine hum at the cabin. All right, boys, we're already approaching LZ, landing zone, in five minutes. Please ensure that you have left no belongings behind as you depart from the bird, and thank you for flying Air Valkyrie, and have a pleasant day. Wake up! Wake up! Tyria yelled over the whine of the engines. Five minutes, he raised his hand out, displaying the five fingers waking everyone up. The team started checking the gear for the last time and braced themselves for the insertion. Flight Lieutenant Peter grinned as he cut the comms off the cabin. He leaned forward and smacked his co-pilot, Flight Lieutenant Tommy's dark grey helmet, decorated with lightning strikes on the side, only to receive a middle finger as a response. You are really enjoying this, huh? Tommy's voice came into Peter's helmet. Hell yeah, we're flying, Peter answered back cheerfully. Always knew that if anyone could make this bucket of bolts fly, it's you. Tommy snorted, and no thanks to you, bro. Come on, cheer up. How's the scope looking, Peter asked. All clear, no radar contacts, Tommy replied. One minute to the LZ. 
Roger that, Peter replied. Thunder Chief, Thunder Chief, Valkyrie 1 on direct approach to LZ in one minute. Over. Thunder Chief, copy that. Make sure the cargo is properly delivered. Over. Wilco, Valkyrie out. Peter handed the comms. All right, boys, hold tight. Here we go. And yanked on the joystick sharply, tilting the bird to the side, nearly vertical to the ground, before nose diving down and putting up at the last second. The whine of the turboprompters changed pitch as the buckles holding Tyria hard against the armor as Tyria gripped the handrails in time, just as the pilot yelled a warning. All right, boys, hold on tight. Here we go. The copter suddenly took a hard right before the floor of the copter dropped. As the pilot took a hard dive downwards, sharply reducing the airspeed and slamming the men hard into the crash seats and hovering the bird about a meter above the terrain. As a precaution against the landmines, despite knowing the enemy has no such technology, it honed the pilot's skills as they kept the bird steady. The crew chief stood and braced against the rear exit like a statue, the sudden turns stunned drives being unable to face him at all. He punched the rear exit ramp down and the lights turned from red to green and stood on the side, yelling, Go! 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 The owls of the 101st ATI, Team Claymore 1, buckled their safety harnesses and rapidly exited the bird, hopping off of the rear ramp and spreading out in a circle. Crunching in the clearing, their M2s were the fat silences pointed into the darkness of the forest around them. As the birds lifted off and the ground effect of the whine of the turboprops vanished, Tyria whistled into his comms. Move out. He's headed towards the north of the forest, straight for their objective. The team donned their night vision gear, advanced equipment taken from the limited stalls of the ship, same as with the comm system that they were using. They headed into the forest in a diamond-shaped formation, keeping a distance of roughly five meters away from each other. The owls tracked quietly and skillfully, not leaving behind any traces of their passage as they head northwards towards their objective. Transport Copter had airlifted Claymore 1 down to the south over the mountain tops, 15 kilometers away from their objective to avoid detection. From there, they would track their way upwards and sneak their way into the enemy camp, taking out the targets and, and if needed, searching and destroying the anchor. The team was mostly armed with silenced M2s and each other member carried a pump-action shotgun with experimental arcane ammunition, while the other members carried the M3 Mage Killer to be used to tank out targets from a distance if possible. Each pair of soldiers would have two M2s, a shotgun and an M3 between themselves, using spells to enhance their speed and agility. The team made quick time, reaching the borders of the Orc encampment in roughly an hour. They could hear the calls and yells from the distance in the direction of the Orc camp. Tyria nodded to one of his teammates who, stopped the silently moved his lips, where a dim glow of bluish magical circles appeared under each of the Claymore One's feet. When the spell was completed, everyone glowed slightly bluish before everyone's body appeared to blend into the darkness. Done, the caster whispered as he finished the minor invisibility spell. Go, Terrio whispered in his team's comms. Turn on your infraprobe lights and keep everyone in sight. Don't get lost. He peered around the circle, trying very hard to spot his teammates in the dark forest. 
He reached over the back of his shoulder and flipped the switch of the cylindrical device strapped to his back. Putting his night vision goggles down, several pulsing lights started in his vision, highlighting the location of his team. After ensuring everyone had a pinpoint to each other's position and their pieces of equipment were working fine, they set off quietly, weapons at the ready as they sneaked past the groups of drunken party orcs. One of the Claymore One team members started to map out the locations and positions of the orc encampment as they sneaked through, identifying guard towers, stores, barracks, sentry locations, etc., Finally, after an hour of infiltrating into the camp, the team spread out over three marked locations, Area A, B, and C, each with two members overwatching the area where the suspected necromancer would appear, except for the specialist Sergeant Tyria, who camped somewhat in the middle of all three locations, acting as a command and control point. Tyria had slowly and quietly climbed up onto an ancient ever-blue, settling down onto the thick branch, three-story sign securing his position by tying a rope and a carabiner around the branch and clipping it into his harness, after which he removed the smart camo netting and covered himself, lying prone on the branch and keeping watch around him. The minor invisibility spell will remain active for a couple hours before fading, and more than enough time for the team to dig in and hide. High Command had not given any dateline for the mission, except that it is highly critical that this mission must succeed. Thus, Tyria decided to ensure everything works out perfectly. His team had planted multiple mines at each location, resembling a Claymore mines of the 20th century. A simple curved plate with hundreds of ball bearings on each side and shaped explosives on the other. The mines were daisy-chained together for maximum effect of the area trap remotely detonated by a clanking device which creates an electronic charge down a hidden electric wire, cleverly camouflaged amongst the forest floor. It would be used as a last option should the team snipers fail to make a kill shot with the M3 Mage Killer, as the targets most likely be protected by magical defensive spells. The huge mass of ball bearings will be more than enough to shred what magical shields and bodies to pieces. The special operations soldiers hidden in the forest waited for hours, ignoring the crawling and the stinging of insects on their exposed skin, and waited for the necromancer to appear. But Lady Luck was not smiling on them as night turned to day, and it wasn't until late afternoon that something happened. Specialist Private Hitsu slowly chewed on dried fruit bar in his mouth, slowly savoring the sweetness of the mixture and the fruits and nuts. He and his partner mentally tuned out the boredom of having nothing happening for hours, even taking turns to take a power nap to recharge themselves. He watched the sloppily patrolling gang of gawks crashing through the undergrowth, loud enough to alert anybody hundreds of meters away and shook his head. He used to fear the rocks, thinking back to the childhood stories that his mother used to scare him with, saying that if you don't sleep now, or you don't listen and be a good boy... The Orkin will come and snatch you away and eat you at night. Now looking at the way the orcs moved and carried themselves, he smiled at how foolish he was when he was younger. Psh! Specialist Loke hissed at his side. A tree away from him, these signals hit Sue with his hand signals, indicating some unusual movement approaching from the east. 
Luke handled the massive M3 anti-material rifle laying on the tree branch, covering the smart camo net and blending in with the special operation sniper perfectly together with the tree. It was only because Hitsu knew where to look. Here he could spot where and what Luke was signing with. Hitsu very, very slowly turned his head to look at the direction of where Luke had said something was happening. His face painted with the dark blue and stripes of black camo paint. Slowly peeking out amongst the netting, avoiding any sudden movements which might attract any attention, and saw a large group of orcs storming their way across them at a distance of fifty meters away. It's a cursed endlessly as he noticed a small contingent of robed individuals amongst the orcs, but one of them clearly stood out amongst the rest, as that individual extruded an aura of pure evilness to Hitsu's senses. He double-tapped his comm, signaling that his other teammates, that his area of operations, which was Area B, had spotted the target. End of chapter. Chapter 86. To kill a necromancer. UNS Singapore Command Bridge. Captain Blake and the other command staff stood around the tactical display table, glancing either at the map on the table or the display on the screens, displaying UAV overhead video feeds and direct feeds from the 101st Arcane Tactics and Intervention, Claymore 1's teams' helmets mounted cameras. The display from the helmet mounted cameras was choppy and the signal was poor due to the canopy of signal blocking trees. Despite the transmitter power Claymore 1 had installed in the forest canopy top beforehand, Everyone's eyes were bloodshot as they waited and drank cups of decaf the whole night, watching the display of the waiting for reports of the mission to come in. Yet hours had passed, yet there was nothing, and most of the command staff had retired to rest when the call came in that the target had been sighted. Now everyone crowded around the displays, watching the screens. The necromancer appeared to be heavily escorted this time by his minions, Commander Ford asked. Should we call it off and wait for another opportunity? Tell Claymore 1 to hold the position and stay on the target, Blake answered. Leave it to the tactical decision for aborting and continuing. On your own tactical discretion, the voice spoke into the specialist sergeant Tyrion's comms. He cursed, thinking what a great way to deny any and all involvement in this crap. Looking at his tablet, he nudged squad 1 and squad 3 towards 2's position, placing Squad 3 as a blocking force to cover the possible retreating route of the target, while Squad 1 was assigned to support Squad 2. Terea peeked out at the cover and tried to see if he can support the group of orcs in the distance, but the cluster of tree trunks prevented line of sight. Squad 2, what's the tactical situation on your sight? Over. A whisper came back from the comms. Heavy escort, at least one dozen orcs, four majors of unknown magical capabilities and our target. Over. Heading, Tyria asked back, looking at the digital map on his tablet. As he looked at the icons, as his team got into position slowly to avoid detection. The target appears to be heading to Cemetery Site B, came back the response. They will arrive in 15 minutes. Squad 1 and 3, you heard that. Terea comms over to all unit channel. You've got less than 15 minutes to get into position. Clicks and raps replied Terea over the comms as squad 1 and 3 acknowledged the order by tapping their bikes. 
Victoria glanced around, making sure that no one is around, and he quickly pulled the smart camo netting away and rolling it up, storing it back into a pouch, before unbuckling the carabiner and slithering down the tree trunk. He did a quick stretch of his body and legs, removing the kinks from staying in the same position away. He crossed his way around the trees and passed at possible speed, without attracting any attention from the rowdy patrolling orcs and found a nice vantage point within some massive tree roots. Terrier braced his M2 carbine against the tree roots and spotted movement between the trees. Good. The target is heading towards where they had set up the traps the night before. Squad 1 in position. The low, panting voice sounded from the comms in Terrier's helmet. We got movement here. Eyes on the target. Squad 3... Terrier asked, are you ready? Negative, Squad 3's in charge replied, we got too many patrols here, we need more time to get into position. Damn, Terrier thought, should I order them to stand down or go ahead? He pondered, he looked up from his hiding spot to see half the group of orcs that had entered the clearing. Squad 3, he hissed, almost there. The reply came back, and the entire orc contingent was now inside the clearing, standing well within the kill zone of the claymores. Here. Loke, take the shot. Tyria whispered urgently into his mic. Take it. And prayed. Specialist Private Loke laid comfortably on the top of a broad, moss-covered tree branch, his smart camo netting covering his whole body, up till the large, bulky silence of his M3 mage killer. The thick and long, 40-centimeter-long black matte-coated silencer peeked out of the edge of his netting. If not for the bipod, Loke might not be able to properly aim and fire his weapon. He zeroed his scope and within a hundred meters of the engagement, disregarded wind and everything else and sniping distance is practically almost a knife range. He used the four-times magnification scope instead of the standard six-times, or even the ten-times scope as it was give him a too much tunnel vision preventing him from shooting or spotting other enemies in the close distance. Hearing the background chatter of Squad 3's race against time to reach their blocking position, Loke kept his corsairs slightly aimed away from the hooded target. He believed that if he aimed directly at the target, it might sense or feel it. As the whole group entered the clearing, the Squad 3 finally reported that they were in position, and Loke heard Specialist Sergeant Tyria whisper his name. Take the shot. Take it. Loke swung the scope directly over the target and without hesitation nor pause squeezed the trigger. The muffled boom of the heavy weapon and the escaping gun smoke instantly covered Loke's view, and he could only rely on his partner Hitsu to report the result of his shot. He quickly worked the bolt, sending the large fifty cal caliber empty cartridge spinning away down to the forest floor. Hitsu raised to a crouch slowly, balancing properly on the tree branch and readied his M2 mage spitter as he heard the order come from Tyria to take the shot. Less than a second, a thump and a cloud of dirty smoke appeared in the upper tree trunk where Locke had hidden, and Hitsu quickly looked at the target, seeing the target flew back from the impact of the anti-material round. Good hit, Hitsu whispered in excitement to all his teammates. Target down. Wait and hold position, Tyria ordered. He had unfastened his binoculars and peered at the crowd surrounding the fallen necromancer. Ensure target is dead. We need to behead the target. No movement from the target on my side, Squad 2 reported. 
but the Yorks are getting restless. Take them all out and make sure no one escapes, Tyrion ordered, as he observed the actions of the Yorks. Roger and several soft puffs and smoke clouds appeared around the clearing as squad one and two engaged the Yorks in less than ten minutes. The clearing was filled with dead bodies. Squad one, go, make sure none is alive. Tyria directed his men to advance to the clearing. Squad two emerged from the undergrowth, their boots barely making any sound on the forest floor. The two owls entered the tactical formation side by side, each covering the firing arcs of the sector. They headed straight to the target, ignoring the rest as they focused on the main objective. Specialist Lance Corporal Young approached as the target body cautiously. He looked at his partner, who nodded, covering him from the side, and Young took a step forward before giving the body a double tap to the head, just in case. As the two bullets smacked into the hooded figure's head, Young suddenly felt a chill down his spine. It's not dead, and fired another three rounds into the head. The hooded figure suddenly twisted away and stood up in an unnatural way, staring at Young from within the darkness of its hood. Young and his partner fired into the center mass of the target, seeing the hooded figure jerk backwards as the bullets hammered it down. Die, you son of a witch! Young cursed, as he emptied his entire magazine of thirty rounds directly into the necromancer's body. Fall back, Tyria yelled at Squad 1, who heeded his order and retreated, firing as they went. A muffled thump echoed between the trees, and another fifty cow round slammed into the target, causing it to flop backwards. Hit it with everything you've got. Squad 1 and Squad 2 opened fire, their silence weapons popping and thumping away in the clearing. Tyria also fired at the target, seeing it jerk and dance with the impacts of the bullets. Suddenly, the dead orc stood up, forming a meat shield around the necromancer, causing chunks of meat and dark red blood to spat all over the clearing. His magical defensive spells must be weakening, someone yelled in the team channel. It's using dead to recover. Fark! Tyria cursed again. By now, the racket made the silenced weapons, the gun smoke raising from the clearing, should have alerted the dumbest orc. Go loud! Mitsu, hearing the order, quickly dropped his M2 on its sling and reached his back, ripping out his pump-action shotgun. In it, five-round magazine tube was loaded with experimental explosive shells. Each shell was packed with hollowed slugs, and with as much black powder that could be compressed and packed with dozens of ball bearings surrounding the black powder charge. A pair of wafer-thin discs carved in the fire-igniting ruin sits at the tapered nose of the slug. When the explosion slug impacts a hard surface, the twin ruined wafers will collapse together and a flame will ignite like an impact fuse, causing the compressed black powder and charge to explode and throwing the ball bearings out in a hemispheric effect, killing or maiming any creature within a five-meter radius. Hitsu aimed the corpse wall and fired, just as Specialist Private Altiot from Squad 1 also drew his shotgun and fired. A second later, the resulting explosion tore those orc bodies into unidentified meat chunks and offal. The second explosive slug, a second behind, exploded inside the barrier of the dead when it impacted against something immediately, causing the corpse wall to collapse inwardly. An unearthly cry erupted from the small mound of bodies, and the necromancer emerged out. Its robes frayed and hauled from gunfire, its hood was torn off. 
A feminine, elvish face with a lifeless eyes now covered in sanity causing tattoos could be seen. The shotgunners emptied the magazine tubes at the necromancer. Frailing, the figure with the hundreds of ball bearings and shrouding it explosives and smoke. We got incoming from the orc camp. Squad there yelled in comms. Engaging. Squad 3, keep them out of our backs while we kill the necromancer. Tyria ordered, replacing his spent magazine with a fresh magazine. He raised his left hand and his fingers forming a seal like a gesture, and two small blue-white magical circles appeared before his hand. He started chanting, forming a spell circle, and casting a bolt of lightning directly into the smoke-covered figure, inciting another unearthly cry. Why won't this thing die? Itsu cried out as he reloaded his shotgun with more explosive shells. The necromancer leapt out of the smoke and charged directly at Altiad from Squad 1, who dove out of the way and raised one knee, dropping his empty shotgun and quickly drawing his M2 and fired into the side of the necromancer, causing it to flinch. Die, mother trucker, die! Altiad screamed at the creature, its feminine elf face and lifeless eyes showing no expression except for the mouth opening wide. Catching a glimpse of the chaotic tattoos on the necromancer's face, Altiad screamed again, as he felt his mind itch, his ears hearing strange chaotic whispers. Don't look at it, Tyria shouted as he charged into the clearing and fired his M2 at the back of the necromancer. Dark splatters of ichor burst out of the wisps of smoke erupted from the blood splats on the ground and corroded what it touched. Altiad's buddy, Specialist Lance Corporal Young, charged over and tackled him away from the deadly swipe of the necromancer's claw-like nails. As Altiad was transfixed on the ruined tattoos on the necromancer's face, his mouth started to drool. The necromancer opened its mouth and gave a scream, its intended victim having snatched away from its grasp. Suddenly, it toppled backwards, as a fifty-cal round blew its left shoulder away, sending a huge spray of smoke echo across half the clearing. Back, Tyria reached Altia and the young side, helping drag Altia out of the clearing. They managed to get Altier away, who slowly recovered his senses. Hit the explosives, Tyria shouted at Hitsu, who quickly pulled out the detonator, giving it a few cranks, eating the electrical current and squeezing the detonator trigger. The daisy-chained black powder claymore mines facing inside of the clearing detonated as one. Eight mines, each throwing 700 3.2 steel balls at a velocity of 1,018 meters per second. The necromancer struggled to its feast and cursed, just as 1,500 steel balls ripped through the entire clearing. Soft skins, you'll be part of my ar- End of chapter. Chapter 87. Angry Orcs. UNS Singapore. Command Bridge. Yes! Cheers erupted through the crew and officers watching what happened through the choppy video stream from Claymore One's actions. Seeing the necromancer get shredded by the mines, the whole bridge just stood up, cheered wildly and applauded. Great work, Claymore One. The bridge communications officer congratulated the team for a successful mission. Hey, hey, Blake called out. The mission is not over yet. We still need to determine if the necromancer's death will also affect the undead army. He reminded everyone. The crew quieted down as they looked on hopefully to the display screens, hoping that the necromancer killed the dead would no longer raise up. Uncharted Forest, Ambush Site B 
coughing from the gun smoke, Specialist Sergeant Tyria pushed himself off of the top of Specialist Altiad, who lay on the forest floor, moaning. Tyria gestured to Specialist Lance Corporal Young to assist and treat Altiad as he headed back to the clearing. Splatters of dark red blood and bits and pieces of orcs sprawled all over the clearing. Tyria readied his weapon and head for the spot where the necromancer was last seen. The robe figure was so ravaged badly by the steel ball bearings that the claymore mines, then most of the necromancer was scattered all over the area. Despite that, the upper half of the necromancer's torso remained behind with its female elvish face still lying there. Tyria avoided looking at the face, remembering what happened to Altiad earlier. He drew his single-bladed sword and hacked down with all his strength, severing the head off. Digging into his pouches, he pulled out a drawstring of bag, kosher, salt, and sprinkled them all over the torso and the decapitated head, before pouring a flask of alcohol liquid over the body parts and setting them on fire. Salt, being used for the purification, will dispel any negative energy or evil energy, and the fire will destroy any chances of the creature reanimating. Squad 3, watch the situation over. Tyria asked as he watched the flames consuming the body parts. We pushed them back for the time being. They are still confused to where our location is, Squad 3 replied. But we got a huge bunch of really angry orcs here. Roger, extract yourselves and meet us at designated rally point Alpha. Copy, Tyria responded. Copy that, bugging out now. Squad 3 replied as they fired a few more rounds and retreated behind the gun smoke, using it as cover for their retreat. All right, Squad 1 and 2, head to the rally point Alpha now, Tyria ordered. Move it. Tyria wanted to see if there were any more things than left behind by the necromancer, but apparently everything got destroyed by the claymore mines. Move it, people. War horns bellowed from within the orc camps. Detonate the rest of the mines and the other sites. Keep them busy. Tyria ordered as he supported Altier's limp form. He chanted a quick strengthening spell, boosting his strength, and firemen carried Altier over his shoulder, including all his weapons and armor, taking off at a quick jog into the undergrowth. Squad 3 led the pursuers back towards the ambush site C, the angry orcs crying out in bloodlust and excitement at the fleeing two figures, screaming vulgarities at the orcs' tongue after them. The two owls stopped hovered over a fallen log where they hid the detonator and quickly cranked the charge, then timed the tramp just as the pursuing orcs entered the kill zone. Other than giant bits of gore, blood and broken pieces of equipment laid shattered all over. Nothing alive remained in slight sea. Squad 3, without even a backward glance, sprinted off towards the rally point. Squad 3 was the last to arrive at the rally point, and rest was already assembled at the rally point, with Squad 2 on overwatch, keeping an eye out with the surroundings for any sign of pursuing enemies. A young form Squad 1 was providing magical medical aid to his mind-stunned Altiad, who was slowly recovering his wits. What happened? Specialist Corporal Doth jerked his head towards Altiad and Young. He nearly got his brain fried from the chaos of dark magic, Tyria answered, Young saved his rear just in time. We got the target, Doth asked again. Beheaded, salted, and burnt. Tyria gave a rare smile. All right, set up comms array. Let's see what further instruction command has. 
Darth nodded, gesturing his partner over as both of them headed off to the high ground to deploy the portable communications array in their backpacks. Tyria went to check on Altiad. How is he? The young peeled back the eyelids and examined the pupils of Altiad and said, He should be fine with some rest. His brain just couldn't handle the backlash of some raw, chaotic magic. Young's kept his way his medical supplies. Luckily, he got a high willpower and managed to resist the effects of dark magic. If not, Young shrugged. His hands were making a pair of wings flying away. I gave him 10 cc's of trank shot. It should sedate him till we get him to a proper medical aid. Tyrion nodded and headed up to where Squad 3 was setting up the comms gear. A small, foldable antenna disc stood at the top of a boxy device with dials and wires. With Darth hunched over it as he aimed the antenna disc into the distance, as roughly the position of where the recon UAV was scheduled to appear over. We got a connection, Darth said, adding to Tyria. All yours. Claymore Actual, to Thunder Chief, do you copy over? Tyria spoke into his comms into his helmet. Dear Chief, reading you loud and clear, over. Claymore Actual, requesting orders, over. Thunder Chief, Command wants you to stand by for confirmation of undead activity. Should threat still be read, go secondary mission, over. Claymore Actual, copy that, out. Damn, Tyria groaned. He was tired and so was his men. All right, pack it in. We go into hiding until night falls. He spoke into the comms to all his team channel. Command wants us to assess the situation of the undead activities. If they are still active, we will begin the secondary mission. Tyria briefed his team. Young, you hold the ready point and look after Altiad. The squad two will reinsert back and stand by at the mass grave site, and whilst I and squad three will head towards the necromancer's suspected tent. Questions? Seeing no one saying anything, Tyria continued. Rest up in rotations. We'll move out when night comes. Uncharted Forest, Orc Frontline Urka the Fear stood at the back of the tree trunk, using as it is cover from the deadly long-range spells cast by the walls of the pass. He watched the trio of Orkin stone throwers in action, sheltered behind the walls made out of thick logs, the Orkin crew pulling the ropes of the trebuchet, and launching rock almost the size of an Orkin towards the wall. War leader! War leader! A skinny Orkin wearing a bright orange slash across his chest, signifying him as a messenger, called out to Orca from behind their lines. What is it? Orca gestured him over, making sure that they were behind cover of the tree trunk. Something has happened at the camp. Smoke and fire. The messenger excitedly gave his report. Slow down, Orca roared, using his fist and thumping the head of the messenger to stop his babbling. What happened to the camp? Um, don't know. The messenger shrugged his shoulders as he rubbed his egg-sized bruised form from his head, just seeing smoke where the elder was headed to. The elder? Orca frowned. Why has this idiot come to disturb him with such matters? The shaman should be able to take care of themselves. Don't disturb me unless the camp is under attack or on fire. There, the messenger scratched his head. Okie dokie. And he scrammed off. Urka shook his head and returned to watching the stone throwers at work, and not long later the same skinny messenger appeared before Urka again. Um, more leader. What now? Urka asked impatiently. Recently he had been getting very impatient with how the war had been going on. 
More smoke and boom-booms in the forest. The messenger waved his arms to indicate the size of the smoke. Boom-boom. Urka scrunched up his face in confusion. What? Then it hit him. Boom-boom meant the sounds the thundersticks made when the cursed softskins in the past. Where? He roared at the terrified Orkin. Back at the camp. Shaking, Orkin pointed a finger back towards the camp. That was when Urka heard several sharp cracks and followed claps of thunder coming distantly from the rear. He shoved the messenger away from his path and ran back, his warriors following closely behind him. As he entered the camp, he noticed the camp was in a state of confusion, warriors standing around looking confused while the slaves huddled him down in fear. A sudden ripple of sharp claps took the cramp. Urka could feel the slight shock waves passing over him. This way, he waved his arms to me. Appearing down a well-worn path in the forest, several Orkin warriors lay dead or heavily wounded on the path. Oka kneeled down next to the wounded warrior and shook him awake, questioning him. What happened? Soft skins. The wounded Orkin coughed out. That way. Go. Orka roared at his warriors. He grabbed the passing Orkin warrior and said, Alert the camp. The softskins are attacking. Be on alert. And he ran after these warriors, just as another ripple of explosions went off. Nearer this time, the shockwave causing him and his warriors to stumble. What is happening? How did the softskins get behind us? Urka cursed as he ran down the long path, before arriving at a clearing where a strong stench of blood and soiled bowels. A path of ground the clearing was scarred black, and as Urka neared, the smell of badly burnt meat assailed his nose. He looked around the carnage in the clearing, trying to piece together what had happened here. Clearly, a very powerful spell had ravaged all living here. He couldn't identify most of the body parts, but he found scraps of blood-soaked robes amongst the litter of the clear. Where is the elder? His battle-hardened warriors, upon seeing the scene, their faces turned pale. They shook their heads, unable to question Urka's question. Find the elder! Spread out. He roared at the hesitating warriors. Go! Despite the best efforts the trackers, the Orkin could not find any trace of the elder shaman. Even the fellow shamans remaining in the camps couldn't even discover any sense of the elder's aura. We couldn't feel him at all, not even his spirit. One of the hooded shamans said to Urka, Curses! How about any trace of the soft skins? Urka asked his lieutenants, who shook their heads. What have you all been doing all this time? He roared angrily. Those soft skins were seen returning to the pass. One of them replied, Nothing past the south path. Another said, Keep finding them. Use the wind wolves. Urka shouted angrily, Find the soft skins and the elder now. He waved madly at his warriors, making him flinch back in fear and respect. His warriors bowed and turned to their subordinates and started handing down orders and instructions, using kicks and punches to draw it into the thick skulls. Urka returned his gaze to the bloody sight, the sticky blood already turning dry in the sun, attracting hundreds of insects and small creatures to feed on the mess. The elder couldn't have been defeated, Urka wondered. No, the elder was protected by spirits. Even if I matched against the elder, I won't possibly win at all. And yet doubt remained in his heart. 
He looked at the charred patch of grass in the middle of the clearing, wondering what had happened here. End of chapter. Chapter 88 Objective Beta Uncharted Forest Rally Point Alpha Tyria grabbed Altiad's shotgun and bondolier while distributing Altiad's remaining 6.5mm magazines to the rest of the team and started to field strip the weapon down and clean it. Everyone took turns doing sentry duty while the team rested, ate, maintained their weapons, their gear, and waited for the sun to set and darkness to come. The team cast a barrier of non-detection and both physically and magically removed all traces of their passing. As they hid in the rested and the trees, orc patrols passed by them several times, searching for any traces of the whereabouts. The only time that they nearly got found out was when a couple of giant wind wolves appeared with orc riders strapped on top of their backs. The wolves sniffed around the trees where they had hidden but couldn't find the scent and left shortly after, causing the whole team who was aiming their weapons at the wolves and all the time to relax. Firing off another short micro-post message to the UAV drone circling over the forest, and after receiving a return message from command, Tyria whispered to the gathered team, who huddled together. All right, while we are going back in, command reports that the undead are still active. This means that there is a high chance of an anchor for the undead to spawn. This time, keep using minor invisibility. I want no one to get found out. The team nodded and started their preparations. Once the invisibility spells were cast, they stealthily climbed down the trees and split off into their objectives, leaving behind Squad 1 to watch their backs. The return trip back to the orcs' encampment was slower this time around, as the orcs' patrolling trampled all over the forest despite being dark, and the light of the twin waxing crescent moons barely cast enough light to see through the thick forest canopy. The noisy orcs holding the burning torches wandered around in the unpredictable roots, poking and shaking the undergrowth as if expecting something to pop out. Despite the noise and the lights cast by the patrols, the sheer number of orcs wandering around made progression slow, as they had to stop and time their movements to try and avoid having an orc walk into them. Luckily, they did not encounter any of the wind wolves in the area, making the infiltration easier. Tyria and Squad 1 reached the outer edge of the orc camp, just barely past midnight, looking at the live activity of the camp. It would appear that the orcs were not all sleeping. Countless numbers of undead could be seen gathering in an area on the other side of the camp. Doth tapped Tyria's shoulders, pointing to the mass of undead. Over there, he whispered. Tyria adjusted his night vision goggles to the maximum zoom, looking at the bright green scenery in the camp with the undead crowding around a couple of large tents. A few shadowy figures stood at the head of the undead crowd, waving and gesturing around. Looks like the remaining shamans are trying to take back control of the dead, Tyria whispered back. Taval, you stay back with the M3, provide overwatch if crap happens. Doth, on me. Tyria recast minor invisibility spell again, ignoring the waves of giddiness watching over him. After verifying the spell is functioning, they hugged the edge of the camp, staying within the shadows as much as possible, before venturing into an open, using the shambling dead as a cover for the orc sentries, ignoring the rot and decay of the dead. Tyria gripped the half-rotten empire soldier from the back, his fingers sinking into the leathery and sunken skin, 
holding onto the shoulder bones. He lifted the confused undead and used it as a shield, advancing closer and closer to the front of the crowd. Doth, at his rear, had placed the left hand firmly on Tyria's shoulder and followed behind him with the makeshift cover. With more minor visibility spell over them, their bodies outlined visibly blurred in the semi-transparency. They managed to blend in amongst the dead easily, as the dead did not show any signs of aggression. Finally, reaching as close as they could get to the tents of the shamans, Tyria ditched the cover and they both crouched, fast crawling amongst the legs of the dead, squeezing through the bodies and using the spot of shadows cast by the burning brazier. They both rapidly crossed the open area and into the cover of the tents. Squad 2, we're in position, Tyria whispered into the comms. Three hours ago, after splitting off with Tyria and Squad 3, Hitsu and Loke headed straight for their objective, skirting past countless numbers of orcs wandering around the burning torches. As they closed into the objective site, the number of undead wandering around became thicker. Some of the orcs entertained themselves by poking and beating their undead, guffawing along the way. Surprisingly, the undead ignored them, and they managed to reach the site of the mass grave, where hundreds of dead soldiers and mindless rose. I think there is no one controlling them at all, Hitsu whispered to Loke, who nodded. See anything living? Loke glanced carefully around his night vision goggles, shaking his head after a while. No, looks like they're dead are here. All right, I'll search this side, you search the other, Hitsu said, pointing out the areas to be searched. Loke nodded again and cautiously stepped into the open, his huge M3 strapped to his back, while his M2 mage splitter held in the ready. Hitsu also advanced out, his M2 up and ready, a bright green beam emitting out of his laser sights as he looked through the night vision. He slowly sweeps left and right amongst the dead, making sure that they were dormant before stopping to cast a spell. A couple magic circles appeared from his hand and Hitsu whispered a chant of detect magic. And as the spell completes, several firefly-like lights appeared and floated around, before orienting in a direction and flew away from Hitsu. But Hitsu cursed, as the fireflies heading into all points of the compass. Damn, there's too much magic interference here. Some of the fireflies landed on the corpses, while others on the trees or even the ground. Hitsu looked over where Loke was, who was also casting detect magic. The spell, but no use. Loke shook his head at Hitsu, who waved back and turned his attention back to his surroundings. Now, how do we find the anchor? He hissed in frustration. As they looked up and down the entire area, the dead suddenly started moaning and shambling off from the gravesite. Both Hitsu and Lok looked at each other in surprise, wondering where they were off to. What's happening? The two of them quickly scrambled for cover, hiding behind the pile of dead wood, watching the undead shuffle off. I think someone had taken control of them, Lok guessed. They looked like they are heading to the York camp. Damn, we need to warn Tyria. Hitsu whispered urgently. Claymore Axel, this is Squad 2. Do you copy over? He spoke into the comms, trying to contact Tyria. It's not getting through. Hitsu cursed as he tried to contact with Tyria and Squad 3 for the fourth time. What do we do now? We continue to search for the anchor. I'm sure that they can handle themselves. Loke said seriously. He gestured to the empty field. They are gone. It's easier to search the site now. Do we even know what to look for? Hitsu asked, as he lifted his head up and peered around the clearing, making sure no hostiles were around. 
that are gone, we should be able to use detect magic now. Alok pointed out. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about that. It's a grin sheepishly. I'll cast it then. Not long, several specks of light flickered around the field, clustering around a point in the middle, where several burrows could be seen under the effects of the night vision goggles. We got something here. They slowly approached the location where the magical specks landed, all the while keeping an eye around the surroundings. Still looks fresh. Loke rubbed the disturbed soil. Seems like something is buried here while everything else was dug up. Cover me, Hitsu said as he detached the foldable entrenchable tool from his back, flipping the spade out and gripping the D-handle and started digging and showering dirt away. Loke retreated back to find some cover by jumping into a convenient-looking trench dug out by the buried dead. He braced his M2 against the wet, loose soil and kept watch as Hitsu dug away. About forty minutes of digging, Hitsu cried out, Found something! And he carried the item he found, dropping it in the same grave that Loke was camping. Here! He tossed it to Loke while he removed his helmet and wiped his sweat. What the fuck is this? He looked at the dirt-crusted pouch, turning it left and right. Something moved in it. He dropped the bag hurriedly and tensed up, aiming the M2 at the pouch on the floor. You felt that too? Hitsu asked as he swallowed a mouthful of water. I thought it was my hands trembling from digging too much or something. He capped his water bottle and returned it to its place on the back of his harness. Salt and burn it. Shouldn't we report it to Tyria that we found the damned thing? Loke said, his eyes not leaving the pulsating pouch on the floor. Are we sure it's the anchor? Tried. Can't get through still. Hitsu removed a small can of purified salt and a bottle of flammable liquid. Only way to find out if it's the anchor or not, he smiled. Go on. Open it. But what? Loke's eyes went wide. You're kidding, right? <laughs> Come on, I need to salt it and burn it. Hitsu grinned. I salt it and burn it then. You open. Loke reached in with his own set of salt and fuel. You open it. <laughs> I didn't tag you for someone so timid. Hitsu teased as he kept the salt and fuel. He pulled out his sword and bayonet and crouched next to the beating pouch and looked up at Loke. Ready? Nodding, Loke stood over Hitsu, each holding a can of salt and flammable fluid. Hitsu reached down and quickly slit the open the pouch and shook out the contents onto the floor. Ah, what the fuck? A blackish crimson heart still beating unnaturally flopped with a sick slap on the grave floor, looking like some sort of abomination slug. Loke quickly dumped a whole can of salt burying the heart in a small mountain and poured the whole bottle of flammable oil into the mix. Hitsu deftly flicked the flint lighter, sending a spark flying, igniting the whole mixture. Seriously, a whole can of salt? Hitsu stood up as the unholy object burst into flames. You know how a can can feed a whole family for four weeks with that amount? Take no chances. Loke defended himself as he breathed in the sigh of relief, watching the blackened heart slowly cook, the congealed fats popping and hissing in the fire. You think it's the anchor? Hitsu nodded. Well, I think that's obvious. He looked out of the grave and blinked his eyes, trying to readjust him to the darkness. Let's go and find a high ground and see if we can contact Tyria. Yeah, let's go. Loke cast a look around the dying flames. The heart was no longer recognizable. Uncharted forest or camp shaman's tent. Crap, 
We can't get through to Squad 2, Dario whispered to the rest. I think there's too much magic interference in the air now. Now what? Darth asked. We continue or what? Tyria considered his tactical options. They are currently in the middle of the entire orc camp and surrounded by not only the orcs, but an army of undead too. If they get discovered, there will be almost no chance of escape. Yet, if they complete the mission, the siege against the pass will weaken significantly and lessen the chances of an enemy breakthrough. Fuck it, let's burn the camps down. Tyria made his decision, doused the tents with all the oil and set up all the remaining claymores that we have left. Doth and Taval nodded, grinning evilly. They quickly poured all the oil onto the hides material of the tent and placing some of the experimental explosive shotgun shells next to the tents. Tyria planted the stalls of claymores. Each team member carried four. He purposely faced two of the claymores directly facing the tents and the remaining two at the most likely venues of the approaches. He unrolled the spools of fuses and laid them next to the patches of oil making use of the fire later to act as a timer for the claymores. Ready? He asked the rest who nodded. Get to cover. And he crept out to where he lost all the brazier burning. Seeing no one looking in his direction, he dropped the remaining spool of dead cord into the fire and quickly sprinted away to where the rest of his men went. The spool of dead cord suddenly burst into flames, causing the brazier to flare brightly, kicking up sparks and showers of embers into the night sky and the tiny flame raced down the training cord, charging towards a pool of oil and the back of the tents. End of chapter Chapter 89 Ride of the Valkyries You can't find the eldest spirit, Berker asked in surprise at the three hooded shamans gathered in front of him. Did you try always? Yes, war leader, we tried. The lead shaman bowed and replied. There was no trace of his spirit in this plane. How about the spirit walkers? Urka asked as he got over his shock. Can they be controlled now that the elder is not here? Yes, we might not be as powerful as the elder, but we shall share the control amongst ourselves, the shaman said, giving a greeting of the hand before leaving Urka alone in his thoughts. Summon Orthia now, Urka shouted out in the seat outside the tent of his warriors outside. And shortly after, the flaps of the tent lifted and the heavy-set Orkin entered. Yes, war leader? Orth greeted Urka with a hand greeting. Did you find anything in your search? Urka asked. No, war leader. We even the great wolves could not find any trace of the soft skins. Orth replied. Find them. They killed the other right under our noses. Urka, he roared, this is the disgrace to our clan. We must find them and make them wish that they were never born. Orth nodded. I will continue the search for the softskins then. Go. Urka waved his lieutenant away. Deep in thoughts on how to win the swore and explain about the death of the elder to the great chief. The shaman stood before the tents and started chanting, using bones and drums out of rhythm to make anyone listening feel their bones aching. The nearby Orkin quickly departed away from the shamans, and not long, the freria in front of the shamans cleared, and slowly, one by one, the dead started appearing and gathering. Nodding with satisfaction, the three shamans split up, each with the leader portion of the dead, they actually felt happy that the elder died, thus the position of elder was now opened. 
It had been occupied by the Elder for many, many generations, and the rest of the shamans were also unhappy with the fact that the Elder used the dark arts to prolong his life, and not only that. He chooses to slave the most, transferring his spirit from one body to another when the previous body started to rot. Just at this time, as the three shamans were thinking of plans and schemes to take the position of an elder from each other, Brazer flared loudly. Sparks and embers flying thigh, startled, the three shamans stared at the brazer, the bright flames getting their light vision, preventing them from spotting the burning fuse that ran to the rear of the tents. Suddenly, a flickering brightness appeared amongst the tents, and a realization came to the shamans. Fire! They ran and shouted, Fire! Standing behind the tents and watching the flames flicker inside the tents. Quick, our scrolls and artifacts! They shouted for the followers and apprentices to put out the fire to save their magical items. As they dashed back into the tents, and one of them paused, making sure that the other two didn't notice him, he ran into the largest tent, which belonged to the elder, hoping to salvage what treasures that had been left behind. When the makeshift explosion of a shotgun shell exploded, the explosion of the shells drew the entire camp's attention and the shaman's tents. The explosion stunned and shocked the orcs around the tents, making them wonder what was going on. The two claymores facing the tents were armed with dead cord fuses. Tyria had set the fuse length for ten minutes, and as the shamans and their followers were inside the tents, confused with the earlier explosion, this special blend of black powder and manastone dusted shaped charge blue, each throwing seven hundred balls of bearings into the tents. The material in the tents were reinforced by magic to protect against both physical and magical attacks. But with the fire constantly draining the magic barrier and the damage makeshift explosives, the ball bearings ripped through the weaker barriers and into the thick animal hide material of the tent, and despite being slowed down by the magical barrier and animal hides, the spread of the ball bearings still carried enough kinetic energy to paint the inside of the tents with red. Another five minutes after the first wave of claymores went off, the orcs arrived on scene to investigate and put out the growing fires as was cut down by the last two claymores placed in strategically located positions. Even some of the gathered zombies were not spared. Urka came rushing over to find out what was happening in his camp and managed to witness his phone stand warriors turned to blood mist by the second wave of claymore mines. What? He stood shocked at the sudden deaths of over twenty strong and powerful orkin, and as to the other poor salt in his wounds, the gathered undead suddenly collapsed bonelessly on the ground, and hardly any sound. Find the soft skins now, I'll rip the skin off, tear their bones out, and make them watch before digging out their eyes. Uncharted forest en route to Rally Point Alpha, or actual cow in over. This is Squad Wu. Tyria heard Hitsu's choppy voice come in. Claymore Actual here. Can you hear me? Ank God Actual. Now is bad. Came the reply from Tyria's helmet. If you can hear me, rendezvous back at Ready Point Alpha now. The whole forest appeared to come alive with after the Claymores went off. Tyria and his team could hear something in the roar in the direction of the orc camp. Eh, da. Young, do you copy? Tyria switched comms to call the squad ones young. I copy. 
Voice came in crisp and clear. Young, get to command. Tell them the necromantic threat is dead and eliminated completely. As they retreated, they saw several of the undead collapsing, meaning that they had destroyed something important. Tell command we need immediate extraction. The Yorks are very angry with us. Tyria told Young over the comms, with a howl cut through the night, followed by another and another. Oh, crap, the pet wolves must have found our scent. Run! Tyria yelled as the heavy footsteps could be heard coming from the rear. Go! A dark green shape loomed up for Tyria's night vision as he looked up. In the eyes of the wolf blazed brightly as the lamps as Tyria laser sights intersected with the head of the wolf and squeezed the trigger of the M2. The silent pops of his weapon and the flashes of clouds of smoke blocked his vision temporarily. A yelp and several orcish cries of surprise could be heard as the wolf flinched from shots and crashed headlong into a tree, sending the riders on its back flying off like broken toys. The wolf sat down on its hind legs and shook its head, clearly dazed by the impact of Tyria took the opportunity to switch to his shotgun and fired a couple explosive rounds at the wolf. Tyria turned and ran, knowing that there was one lesser wolf than the chase. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Marine Support Base. The whine of the turboprop fam steadily grew louder and louder, and the two Valkyries of the tarmac powered up their engines. The Rio cargo lamp rayed open, and Sergeant James stood at the foot, waving the Marines to board. Come on, what's there to be afraid of? We did this in practice. But Sarge, it was a piece of wooden cut out. Someone protested as they bunched up before the ramp. You sure the metal bird can fly? James rolled his eyes. God, he kind of forgotten that these guys had never seen an aircraft before. Don't worry, I'm here inside with you. He gestured to the other bird on the other side. Look, section three and four have boarded. Now it's all left as you wussies. The bunched up marines looked at each other and slowly, one by one, entered the belly of the beast. James shook his head at the crew chief, just smiled and gave him a thumbs up before the ramp doors closed. All right, buckle in tight, James yelled at the whine of the turbofans. Check your weapons are loaded. I do not want to have someone shoot a hole in this bucket and kill us all. The marines hearing that quickly double-checked themselves and their neighbor's weapon, making sure that no one was loaded. James smiled as he watched the owls panicking as the pilot took the bird off. All right, marines... Do you want to live forever? Uncharted Forest Rally Point Alpha. Pops and barks of silenced gunfire erupted from the tree line of defense. Tyria and his men howled. They conserved their shots, making sure that each shot counted as the horde of orcs charged towards them. Without the night vision goggles and the hundred and first, the orcs could only blindly charge at where they believed the softskins were hiding at. The superiority of weapons and training allowed the Claymore 1 to fight off an enemy hundreds of times their size. The M2 Mage Spitter proved to be very efficient in close quarters combat, as the rate of fire of the weapon allowed Claymore 1 to down a large group of charging orcs, while Loke and Young sniped at the wolves with the M3 Mage Killer. Requiring one to three shots to bring down a wolf, when the orcs rallied in attempt to charge the lines, Hitsu and Darth would switch to shotguns, firing explosive rounds into the midst, tearing them to shreds. I'm out, Tabble shouted, dropping his M2 and drawing his singles-action dragon revolver, rapidly squeezing off five shots of 5mm blindly into the charging orc in front of him. 
sending it toppling backwards. Reloading! Here, Terea tossed a magazine across to Tubble, who fumbled for it in the dark. He himself switched to the shotgun and pumped shot after shot into where the orcs were concentrated. Come on, where's the pickup? Claymore 1, this is Valkyrie 1, inbound to your location in fired mics. A welcome voice came into Tyria's comms. Heard you guys got some pest problem. Valkyrie 1, this is Claymore Actual, requesting immediate pickup. Area is hot. Repeat, area is hot. He yelled into his comms, craning his neck to look up at the dark sky. Not long, the whine of the engines could be heard in the distance. Claymore 1, keep your heads down. We got some presents for our friends. What? Tyria was confused, but the statement... Oh, crap. And then he remembered from watching all those movies about helicopter pilots. Danger close, danger close. Several whooshes and followed and loud clumps of explosions ripped through the forest directly in front of Claymore 1, turning the night into day. Say hello to my little friend, Peter yelled as he hovered his bird over the rally point. His payload of 70mm experimental rockets fired from twin rocket pods torn into the forest setting it on fire. The 70mm rocket payload was a mixture of hydrogen, oxygen, aluminium, and manastone dust, using an impact fuse to fire the ruins and nose of the rocket. The thermobaric rockets worked similarly to fuel air bombs, which dispensed the aluminium and manastone dust into the air before the hydrogen and oxygen mixed together. His wingman Tommy stayed on his station at 200 meters away, Rippled fire of volley of rockets into the path on which the forest, sending a huge balls of fire into the sky. Valkyrie 1 to 2, dropping my cargo, over. Roger, Tommy, piloting the Valkyrie 2, spun his bird on its axis and continued to ripple fire volley after volley of rockets into the night. Valkyrie 1 turned, its back facing the direction of the orcs and hovered over the clearing, dropping its tail ramp and dozens of marines jumped out and fanned out to form the security cordon. They fired at the shell-shocked orcs who were backlit from the burning forest and balls of explosions raging from behind them. Mulcury too hovered over the clearing of one and cleared and dropped off the marines who reinforced the line, driving the orcs back into the forest, screaming about dragons and fireballs. End of chapter chapter 90 earth magic uncharted forest first fallifall regiment of swords camp the duke's own what is happening with the orkins lord strom stood at the top of the archery tower and glanced towards the orking camp seeing a large orange glow from the orking camp direction how long was this ago just after the ringing of the night bell my lord the reported soldier kneeled at his side Suddenly, several large thundercracks and balls of fire could be seen in the distance. Sturm raised himself as the ground shook slightly and looked with surprise at the raising flames. What in the thirteen hells is happening? Sturm cried. Send your men to find out. The soldiers bowed and retreated down the ladder and headed towards his subordinates. Sturm frowned as he watched the flames bursting skyward, followed by the slight ground tremor. Could it be that the rebels were attacking? But from what direction? A new passage, maybe? Multiple thoughts raced through Sturm's head as he analyzed each possible scenario. We wasted more than a week here already, and the Orkins' attacks are not progressing well enough. 
Slurms spoke to his officers behind him. Prep your men for an all-out attack before the sun breaks. We will hit them in multiple places at once. Sturm leaned on the parapet, the fire from the distance reflecting a mad glint in his eyes. For the Empire, he whispered. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, the Marine Base. The rear ramps of the Valkyrie 1 slammed open and soldiers of the 101st ATI stormed down the decks, each man holding on a stretcher bearing one of the wounded. Several medics personnel with large red cross armbands rushed up, pushing the trotty bed, waking over from the weary soldiers. He got mind-farked. Specialist Lance Corporal Young yelled over the scream of the turboprops. He was a team healer or medic as the humans had called them. What? One of the humans' medics looked at him in confusion. She was digging into her bag of tools with stuff like blood pressure monitor, as Yuch Young managed to recognize from these first aid courses. He saw something he shouldn't have. Young continued to yell over the rotors as they pushed Altiered away towards the medical stentage. His brain shouldn't handle the magical backlash. Oh, the female human with the name tag reading June had their short hair tied up in a ponytail and a pair of stethoscopes over her neck. Okay, he goes into trauma one. I gave him a total of 20 cc's of trank shot and hooked him up with a fluid drip since yesterday evening. Young ran through all the medical tape he gave. I also cast minor recovery and minor dispel on him. Got it. June scribbled down the information on a pan and hooked it to the trolley. Any physical trauma? No, it's only mental injury. Young replied, stopped by the thick white curtain of the medical tentage. Don't worry, June assured, giving him a comforting smile as she and her team pushed Altiered into the tent. We'll heal your friend. Okay, I'll just wait here. Young sat down next to the couple of marine guards on duty at the medical center, who nodded respectfully to Young. Not only after sitting down, Young dozed off from exhaustion. Sawtooth Mountain Path Defense Command Center, The Pit Major Frank smiled as the word came that the 101st Arcane Tactics and Intervention had landed successfully at the Marine Support Base at the rear of the lines. The reports from the defending Marines haven't any sights of the undead, and the nightly attacks had ceased, allowing the defenders some rest. He started clapping the pit. Good work, people! He praised everyone as they pushed their work and clapped along. The face of Special and Sergeant Tyria on the display gave the tired smile of satisfaction. Sir, we do have a single casualty from fighting the necromancer, Tyria reported. He is currently in medical center undergoing treatment. Frank nodded. Still, Claymore One has done an outstanding job. I'm going to recommend the whole team for citations. Thank you, sir, Tyria gave a salute. If there's nothing else, sir, I need to attend to my men. Frank smiled again. In return, the salute. Tell your men good job. Drinks will be on me. The display connection cut off and they both finished the conversation. Frank looked at Pike and said, Well, the Valkyries turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Frank nodded. Even the trial rockets were above expectations. I'm expecting at least half the rockets to fail and even blow up in their pod launchers. Ye, have little faith, Pike grumbled. I designed those things. They will work, one way or another, he grinned. Now it's to put the mass production. So far our new weapons are working well enough to counter the enemy, Frank said. I'm curious as to how they tame those wolves. Just at this moment, the communication tech called. Sir, incoming transmission from command. Frank nodded. 
put it on the main screen. The screen flickered and Captain Blake appeared before him. Sir, Frank and Pike saluted. At ease, Blake saluted back. I give you my congratulations on a successful mission. UAV shows no undead forces attacking the pass. I hope the undead threat is over and totally eradicated. Yes, sir. We currently have no reports of any sightings of undead either, Frank replied. Blake nodded at the screen. The modified helos and rocket pods appear to be also working very well. Frank grinned. Yes, way better than expected. I'm sure it'll be a nasty surprise for the Empire when they we unleash them. Good. This is war is getting stupid, Blake sighed. If we can overpower the crap out of them in one attack and end the siege, we will be in a better position to choose our next battle. Frank nodded. If they can choose the battles, it definitely would view them with more of a gedge against the Empire. Sir, I am sure that they will react to this morning's activities, Frank gave his assessment. Yes, I concur. The ship's missile batteries will be available to your request, Blake said. But we only have so many missiles. Try not to waste it on small fry. Yes, sir. And thank you, sir, Frank said. I will also have the Valkyries to provide close-in-air support. Blake nodded. As much as the fight is necessary, but if possible, I'd like the Master Sergeant Pike to have suggested try and avoid killing the slave soldiers. Frank gave a grimace. It'll be hard, sir. From what we know, the standard Empire tactics involve using their slave army as meat shields. They send them up to soak up as much of the damage as possible and keep the enemy pinned down while their more mobile units break into the flank attack, Frank explained. At times, they also ignore their own slaves' troops and just trample over, friendly fire them. Pike added, Well, I would suggest using an armed forces entertainment services to blast propaganda to the slaves. You know, get them to surrender and defect over all of that crap. Blake nodded. I'll speak to the princess on this in the morning. Brief your men on the offering the slaves' options to surrender. Yes, sir, Frank replied. I will also get a place at obscurity hold the prisoners and screen them properly. Great. Now get some rest. It's nearly zero four hundred hours, and I'm sure that the enemy will come up with something soon, Blake said. As the sky brightened slightly, thousands of Empire soldiers slowly crept closer to the pass. Their steel hobbled boots muffled by strips of cloth, and they gathered just at the edge of the forest with the grumpy Orkins that waited for instructions. Ninety-nine hooded mages in blue trench coats stood at the rear of the lines. They had drawn a massive circle formation amongst the trees, using precious materials like drops of dragon blood, mercury, and enchanted silver for the formation. Master Mage Dular stood directly in the middle of the spell formation next to the female, wearing a dark blue hooded robe which highlighted her figure perfectly. Two fully armored in blue and gold tones, the Emperor's lifeguards flanked her by the side, their blank visors covered in the face fully with no eye slits to be seen. Mage Dulon nodded after a while as he inspected his men's work. To your satisfaction, my lady, he asked in a mocking tone to the female. The witch ignored him, crouching down and using her forefinger and poked into the markings on the ground. She nodded and stood back up and remained quiet, casting a cold glaze at Dala, who smiled. Do you think then, Dula said, or you can escape if you want. She looked away from Dula and laughed. Bring the slaves, she snapped his fingers. Quickly now. 
300 downtrodden slaves of mixed ages and genders, secured together by ropes tied to their necks, were dragged and forced to kneel in specific locations within the magic formation. 300 soldiers accompanied them, standing behind with their hands on their hilts. The witch closed her eyes and her head slightly bowed and her shoulders visibly shook. She took a deep breath and looked up. Her silver eyes filled with an anger and a sadness as the magic circle expanded out from her, enveloping the information. Dula raised her hand and chopped down, timing it just as the witch finished her enchantment. Three hundred soldiers drew their swords as one and chopped down, cutting off the screams and cries of the bound and needing slaves. Blood fountained out, and as the blood touched the lines of the magic formation, the formation glowed brighter and brighter as it absorbed the blood. Dula felt goosebumps rising all over his body as the air crackled with energy, and he started to laugh madly, enjoying the feeling of raw power building up in the area. No! he screamed at his men, who stood in a line, raised their hands up and chanted a spell. Their magic formation glowed brightly, lifting up the forest, and suddenly a massive earthquake erupted. The ground rumbled and shook, and the earth moved, rising higher and higher, uprooting trees along its way, before slamming directly against the vertical cliff walls of the mountain, creating a ramp up, large enough for a dozen land dragons to walk side by side. The landscape had changed, and the new gentle slope had raised up directly against the wall of the pass, just as the first rays of sunlight cut over the peaks of the mountain. Sawtooth Pass, Wall Alpha. The rumbling and shaking of the land woke Mills up from his sleep. He kneeled on all fours, worrying what the hell was going on. An earthquake. Corporal, one of his men yelled, and one hand holding onto his helmet as cracks appeared in the concrete walls, and the concrete dust dribbled down from the ceiling. Look, the marine pointed out of the firing slits, where the sky was brightening. Mills pushed himself up, balancing himself against the wall, and the ground continued to roll and sway under his feet. He leaned against the firing slit and looked out, his mouth dropping as he saw the earth climbing up against the cliff wall unnaturally. The earth pushed up the rise like a water, and before hardening and forming into a gentle slope about a kilometer long down the side of the cliff. What the freck? He rubbed his eyes and stared out again, Shaking as the ground slowly stopped, but a huge stretch of land appeared in front of him, made him wonder if he was gone insane from too little sleep. Hundreds and hundreds of tiny figures could be seen forming up the slope and the edge of mills continued to stare. A whistle went off, and the public announcement system blared. Stand to, stand to, this is not a drill, I repeat, this is not a drill. Before rock and roll music continued playing. Freck, Mulls yelled, gaining back his senses. It's an all-out attack. Fricking hackers. End of chapter. Chapter 91. Anti-Dragon Warfare. Oka looked on grumpily as he stood with the members of his clan at the rear, watching the thousands of empires climbing up the slope under the cover of smoke, clouds cast by the Imperial Majors. He gawked at the spat at the side of the soft-skinned Big Lord has told him to get out of the way. Urka never had been disgraced and humiliated so badly before. He wondered how he had the answer to his clan for the failures when he returned with a defeated hand. Should he ignore the Big Lord's orders and charge in alongside the soft-skins, maybe he could still salvage some credit for the battle still. 
yet his pride would not allow him to do that. Recamp, we returned home. He gave his command to his warriors. Lord Sturm stood at the top of a viewing platform, constructed at the rear, allowing him to see the whole battlefield as he glanced at the retreating Orkins, and snorted at the useless beasts. He had thought that he could use them to shock troops in the front, but they turned out weaker than expected. Ignoring them, Sturm turned his attention to the developing battle, watching his men close up the good order, overlapping the shields and they used to cover the smoke of Vance. The crossbow regiment followed tightly behind the shields while the lancers laid out of sight, waiting for an opportunity to strike. In and front, the large rumble of slaves armored with low-quality weapons and junk armor raced up the slope, knowing that by moving fast they had a chance to better survival. What, and the heathen-sounding noise coming from the walls? Sturm asked, hearing some unfamiliar music coming from the walls. My lord, one of the lackeys responded, it's some kind of music the rebels have been playing lately. Sturm raised his eyebrows in surprise, straining his ears to throw to catch the music. But with the roar of battle and shouts of thousands of men, he couldn't really catch the tune. Oh, whatever. Sturm looked up at the troops' position. It's almost time. Signal the Sky Knights to begin their assault. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Wall Alpha. Mills aimed the mage lock into the dark cloud of smoke in front of him, gauging roughly where the enemies would be, and fired. Damn, how I wish we had some artillery support. The loudspeakers were blasting ACDC's thunderstruck, which to Mills felt like an oddly appropriate. All right, ignore the slaves and go for the blue boys. Mills yelled over the music and gunfire as the slaves emerged from the smoke, charging with ladders to the walls. The slaves who carried the siege ladders clambered up over the obstacles such as the barbed wires and planted the feet of the ladder down firmly against the ground in front of the walls. They climbed up rapidly, only to find that there was no parapet on the top of the walls. A smooth, rounded roof greeted them, and they couldn't find any way to climb or walk on the round surface. Major Frank frowned as he watched the slaves milling in confusion on the roof wall, as they could neither advance nor retreat. Already a few had slipped off and fallen to their deaths from losing their focus. Nam, what kind of magic is that that can terraform the earth? Frank sighed. Freaking cheaters. No such thing as cheating in war, sir, Master Sergeant Pike spoke up. I wonder how much energy is needed for a magic on that scale. Thought you hated them, magic, Frank teased. Didn't you get a headache every time they used magic to attacks against nature? Marines learn to adapt and improvise. Pike responded, we get better and better at killing things. Sir, radar is picking up multiple bogies in the air, the tech reported from his station. Distance 2070 meters and closing in. Do we have a visual? Frank asked, turning serious. The tech played with the consoles of the UAV visual feed appeared. Numerous black dots in the sky could be seen, and as the image zoomed in, they enlarged to become huge winged lizards and dozens of smaller ones. Damn... They have so many flying dragons, Pike cursed. I thought they were quite rare. It's probably all they had left, Frank replied. Seems like they had planning to airdrop troops behind the walls, judging from the numbers of soldiers on board the dragons. Dozens of soldiers could be seen, riding in a special harness, strapped to the sides in the back of the dragons. I count about 40 plus aboard each dragon, Pike said. Ten large dragons and roughly 50 meters or more smaller ones. Those look like escort or skirmishers. 
Say 40 troops and not counting the dragon crew, 10 of each means about 400 soldiers, Frank calculated. Most likely all veterans or night-class warriors. Let's just shoot them out while they're up still in the distance away, Pike suggested. Looking at the flight path, they would be passing the north of us and most likely will swing around and land at our rear. Missiles or railguns, Frank robbed his chin as he debated within the two weapons. I suspect they probably have some kind of magical shielding. They must have learned from the previous time. Pike nodded. One thing is for sure, they ain't stupid for some low-tech pukes. Railguns, then. We can afford the ammo. Frank grinned wickedly. Direct guns one and two to engage the transport dragons. Pike shook his head at Frank's gleeful expression. You just want to play with the new toys. Hey, it's been down for servicing for so long, Frank argued his point. Now, with the real trial on fire? The two modified Mitsubishi XLM 5 megawatt point defense laser turrets, which was salvaged and turned railgun emplacements, finally had the chance to prove its worth. After weeks of tampering and redesigns, it was finally able to be fired in anger. The gun loader manually slammed a 105mm discarding Sabot anti-dragon shot into the chamber of the railgun and turning the chamber hatch shut. Ready, the loader yelled. The gunner peered through the gun sights and the gun laying system calculated the distance and heading using the fire control radar which displayed the information on the target's azimuth, elevation, range and range rate on the targeting screen. The gunner laid the sights over the predicting dots and squeezed the butterfly trigger, and a dull thump echoed across the turret, followed by the whine of electromagnetic discharge and build-up static electricity. Gun 2 fired a second later, and five seconds later Gun 1 fired again, followed by 2, again, and again. The kinetic energy penetrator exited the railgun barrel at a velocity of 3,675 meters per second. The crack of its passage through the air caused shockwaves as it ripped through the air, causing a sonic boom. The penetrator rod furled and Gun 1 flew directly at the center mass of the leading dragon, and the magic circle appeared just before it impacted the dragon. A shockwave erupted from the kinetic energy given off by the penetrator, and the magic shield flickered. Five seconds later, a second sabo slammed into the shield again, followed by another five seconds later. The magic shield had fractured and exploded as the third penetrator rod slammed into it, and the crew of the dragon panicked. They made the dragon dive down to dodge the attacks, but it was too late for the fourth armor-piercing fin-stabilized discarded sabo clipping the hindquarters of the dragon. Despite a glancing hit, the kinetic energy imparted rent off the dragon's rear legs and tail, affecting a dying scream from the beast and sending it into the death spiral into the ground. A second dragon exploded into chunks of meat and broken bodies as soldiers on board as its magic shields failed, and the remaining eight dragons, including the confused escort, shattered, diving for cover and taking evasive maneuvers. The gunner tracked the diving dragons, the turret servos traversed the turret at 100 degrees per second, and the gunner fired when the lock on tone beeped. In less than five minutes, all the ready ammunition of the armor-piercing fin-stabilized discarded sabots, or APFSDSs, were used up, and the loaders scrambled out of the turret, screaming at the nearby support crew to bring more APFSDSs up. As the crew piloting the dragon shook the opportunity in the lull to close the distance over the mountain, planning to use the mountain as cover. The smaller dragons couldn't fly that high, 
Instead, they hug as close to the terrain as possible, aiming for the pass directly. Connor, commanding Newt of Gun 1, whooped with satisfaction as he saw he shot down two large dragons. He used his ballista operator back in the day in the Goldrose Army. He yelled to his loader, who was busy dragging the bundles of APDSDSs and shots from the support crew outside the hatch. Hey, Taki, just load the canister's shots first. The smaller dragons are almost onto us. The loader, Taki yelled, Ugh, we need more space for ammo and maybe another loader. He hoisted a bundle of three penetrator rods into the inside of the turret and filled up a large canister of armor rack. He shoved the canister into the mouth of the gun chamber and closed the breech, yelling, Loaded! The high-pitched whine followed by the chest-pounding thud could be felt, and the canister containing 1,150 lead balls dispersed out upon exiting the muzzle at 1,710 meters per second. Like a giant shotgun, swatting off several of the smaller dragons as they attempted to close in over the mountaintops, the rest scattered, some keeping as low as to the ridgeline, while others went as low as the treetops, trying to dodge from the deadly bee magic. Loaded, Taki yelled again, as he reached for another canister shot. The gun whined and thumped, spitting out its load of grape shot, sending another bunch of dragons spiraling down. Despite both guns' best efforts to shoot down the dragons, dozens slipped past, their crews and firebombed down, setting the past defenders on fire. Thick black smoke billowed out from the incendiaries within the pass, the smoke providing cover for the larger dragons to gliding closer to land their cargo. One of the larger dragons flared its wings as it attempted to reduce speed to land directly in the middle of the two walls. Eight, a shotgun blast directly from gun two, its mighty parts and blood painting the entire courtyard and the wall dark red with the stinky blood and guts. The remaining six heavy dragons spread out, some landing on the roofs of concrete structures, others just crash-landed, spilling their live cargo out like toys. The marines took the opportunity while the Empire soldiers were recovering from their landings, rapidly firing their mage locks, creating a killing zone. The dragons spread out their bodies' wings as wide as possible to protect the men, soaking up the bullets and crying tears of pain. Frank cursed. All right, tell the Valkyries we need close air support now. Get them to hit the front of the walls. Don't let the enemy pile up on the gates. He gave his command to the communication operator, who nodded and started speaking urgently into the boom mic. They are inside the compound, Pike reported. So far the boys in beta are pinning them down. But sooner or later they're going to cast some crappy spells and break out. Send in the 101st. Frank decided after considering that they might be facing night-class soldiers. Have the marines on site support them? Pike nodded and headed towards the exit. I'm going out for some air. It's getting stuffy as hell in here. Go get some for me, Frank grinned. And don't buy the farm yet. I still got tons of paperwork waiting on your desk. With all due respect, sir, freck paperwork. I would rather die. End of chapter. Chapter 92 All-Out Attack Sparks and smoke exploded against the gleaming dome of a level 4 magic shield covering the 3rd Falafor Regiment of Swords. Commander Elotion, dressed his blue ornate armor, waved his heirloom sword, yanning encouragements to his 3,000 men. Advance! Our major spells of protection will protect us from their weak magic. 
just another 400 paces away. The 3rd Regiment of Swords carried shields and short stabbing swords as standard gear. They were a veteran regiment fighting in several wars and trained to the highest imperial standard. Their tactics were to storm up to the enemy tight wall of shields and hammer into them. The second line would use the short stabbing swords to stab at any exposed body parts, feet, arms, faces, etc. Working like a mechanical clockwork soldiers, they'd grind the enemy down bit by bit, and so far no other army was their rival. Their morale was high as they marched and stepped, shields locked together and followed their commander to victory. The regiment's majors held their staffs tightly, their faces white and sweating from the efforts to hold the level 4 protection spell. Each impact against the shield drained some power from them, and there was a lot of damage being dealt with the shields, as evidenced by the constant sparks exploding from the surface of the shield. The third finally exited the cover of the magical smoke and emerged within a full view of the wall, less than a hundred paces away. Ellison's pride swelled as his regiment with the first sight of scales the wall, ignoring the fact that the slave army had already arrived way before him. He raved his sword and pointed directly at the wall and roared, For the Empire! Charge! And the whole world around him exploded. The skies of a sawtooth mountain passed. First Lieutenant Peter whooped with glee as he pulled up from the strafing run. Valkyrie one to two, did you catch that? His Valkyrie dived down to the other side of the mountains directly from the flanks that he just spotted a huge perfect infantry square marching out of the cover of the smoke directly in front of the wall. He gave them a good strafe with dozens of rockets directly in their flanks. He pulled up and jinked his bird hard as the Empire Dragons nearly rammed into him. Whoa, that was close, Peter said to himself. The air was thick with Empire Dragons and led by the gun turrets, which were blasting away at the highly agile flying reptiles. Without the guns on board the Valkyries, Peter and Tommy focused the rocketing the enemy infantry, ignoring the dragons. This Valkyrie shook wildly as the Empire Dragon somehow managed to latch onto his bird. Warning alerts peeped and bled, he twisted his head back and forth, trying to locate what the dragon grabbed onto. It's on the port wing stabilizer, Tommy's voice came through the warning sirens, directly behind your rocket pods. Oh, wanna play? Peter grinned, ignoring the warning alerts. Then let's see if you can handle this. He tilted his bird downward and looped towards the battlefield, lining up for a strafing run. He pushed his head against the armored sapphire crystal canopy. He grinned and squeezed the trigger, firing off a salvo of rockets. The Empire Dragon, with its rider, gripped tightly onto the weld of the stabilizing wings, with the rider using its javelin trying to pierce the magic beast hide, while the dragon tried to bite chunks off the beast. But to both the dragon and its rider's surprise, the hide of the beast appeared to be made of metal, when suddenly the three roundish pods erupted from flames, torching the dragon and burning the face off the rider. The dragon fell from the bird-like cry as its death spiraled down the air the wings folding as it slammed down into the battlefield, shattering a company of infantry. Ooh, first air-to-air kill! A few more and I'm an ace! Peter cracked wildly as he looped back with his ship. He fired off the remaining rockets. Valkyrie 1, bingo, on ammo, RTB. Thunder Chief Roger, watch the skies, forecast a day's heavy with dragons and lead. 
Peter laughed as he pulled his Valkyrie away from the battlefield at full speed, ignoring the few Empire dragons that attempted to tangle with him. Sturm hammered the wooden railing and cursed loudly as he watched the black flying creature rain down fire on his troops as they finally reached the walls. Signal the dragon corpse to focus on taking those two creatures down. He gave the order of his runner, who ran off to signal the flags. The 17th, 18th, 21st, 26th and 32nd Imperial Dragon Corps weaved through the clouds of grapeshot and smoke and the dragon crews lobbing flasks of alchemist fire directly at the walls as they flew past. The Empire classified dragons into three categories, light, medium and heavyweight class. Under 10 tons, lightweights such as the yellow shift wings mostly function as couriers or the blue colored lightning worked mainly as rapid passenger transport while the medium and heavy-weighted dragons are mostly used for combat, thus some were more transport personnel or goods too. Medium weights were classed between 10 and 30 tons, were mostly rowed by a single bonded rider, or the crew up to four, depending on the breed. The Empire used mostly domesticated silver wings named for the silver scales, which went over 12 tons, were renowned for the speed and agility, requiring a single dragon rider to pilot them. The rider normally used a light crossbow or javelins as their weapons of choice. The other commonly used medium-weight dragon was the Razorback, average weighing in at 20 tons. With black and gold scales and a spiked spine, it could carry a crew of up to four and its bonded rider, though normally a crew of two was used to reduce the total weight. The crew mostly worked as a crossbowman and grenadiers, throwing firebombs. Heavyweight dragons were slightly special, as most heavyweight breeds have breath abilities, like spitting and breathing fire, acid, lightning, or even blasts of compressed air. The Empire had successfully bred its own fire-breathing heavyweights called Spitfires, weighing in at an average of 32 tons, with a wingspan of over 15 meters, the body length from head to tail of 22 meters, and the scales are a mix of dark blue and dark crimson. Crews of up to a dozen typically served on board with Dragon, with its bonded rider or a captain. The Empire Spitfires were specifically woven baskets and harnesses that allowed the crew to move around the Dragon during flight. They can carry ordnance like firebombs to rock for bombings at fortifications. The heavyweights that did not manifest special abilities were negated to beasts of burden, rolls or troop transports. It allowed the Empire to rapidly deploy its soldiers and move supplies rapidly over vast distances. An Imperial Dragon Corps consists of 20 mediums and 2 heavies, and for this battle, Sturm had committed 5 Imperial Dragon Corps. Raising his eyeglasses, he watched the battlefield, seeing the 3rd Regiment decimated while the 1st and 2nd got hammered by Dragonfire, despite having protection spells. Order the ballistas to load the Dragon Lancers, a reward of a hundred gold coins for the crew who brings down the rebels' flying beasts. Order the left flank to push up and support the assault in the middle. Sturm continued giving orders as he observed the battlefield. Have the siege engines brought up. Make sure that most of the smoke is cast to hover over the approach of the gate. The giant siege engines were towed in two heavily armored land dragons, massive plates of metal and leather covering all the vulnerable areas of the land dragons as it advanced up the slope pulling the giant door knocker siege engine a massive wooden construct designed to destroy walls or gates 
Ruins of enchantment covered the whole body, and the siege engine and hundreds of crew piled alongside the construct, riding along. As the massive siege engines approached the gates, a sudden flash of light erupted directly on one of the siege engines, followed by another, and the second siege engine. Sturm cried out in surprise as the light seared into his eyes. He fell back, rubbing his eyes as the guards quickly surrounded him. As Sturm recovered his eyesight, he looked back at the pass, seeing the burning remains of the two siege engines and the collapsed dying land dragons, which effectively blocked most of the approaches to the gate. Damn, those rebels! Where did they get such powerful spells? Get the witch here, I want that wall taken down, Sturm yelled at the frightened runners. Once the walls are down, I want the lancers to push in with full force. But my lord, the auxiliary slave army is still at the forefront of the army. One of the lackeys pointed out, are we going to? Why? You care for those slaves? Sturm glared at the lackey who had spoken. Then why not join them at the front line too, huh? Um, my lord, I didn't mean that. The lackey bowed his head down and tried to keep himself as small as possible. Enough of this nonsense. I want the witch to destroy those walls. Now, Sturm commanded, I want the imperial flag raised up by noon. Not long, the witch was escorted up to the viewing platform with the mage Dular following behind. Great, I want that wall destroyed now, Sturm went straight for the point. That is impossible. It is protected by several enchantments and spells. The witch immediately stared, staring at the walls. How about the mountain walls? Sturm asked, standing next to the witch and watching the battle. Can you collapse the mountain? The witch laughed merrily and asked, How many lives are you willing to sacrifice? A thousand? Two thousand? Sturm's face turned red as he healed in anger. Don't play games with me, witch. The witch stopped laughing as her face turned serious. To make the ancient mountain move will require far more magic than ever. Even if you sacrifice a thousand lives, it might not even be enough. She gestured at the imposing peaks. They have been here for thousands of years. The amount of magic has seeped into the very fabric of existence. And you, just a man, wants to command the ancients to do your bidding. She laughed again. Using the topsoil of the surrounding area to create a way up to the walls is already going against the natural order of things. Now you want to move the mountains? She sneered at Sturm. Sturm angrily backhanded the witch, his ring scratching across her face, causing a trickle of blood to flow freely down. Enough! You are here to help, so help! All my report back to the Emperor will not be so good for your people. The witch straightened up, ignoring the blood flowing down her cheek. She slapped the knocked her hood off, and her thick, long silver hair flowed out. Her silver eyes glared daggers at Sturm's threat, and she took a deep breath, calming her anger down. The next best thing I can do is create land bridges over the walls, she said after calming down. The rest is up to your men. I can only do so much. Sturm nodded, admiring the witch's beauty. Dula, rigor, and prepare the materials needed for the spells to be cast. Yes, my lord. Mage Dula bowed before gripping her forearm and pulling her back down the tower. Get the battle mages to bombard the walls with fire. I want the walls to burn. Sturm ordered his runners, and get the rest of the regiment to advance when the witch's spells are cast. Sturm glanced at the skies, where the dragons had circled and dive-bombed the area behind the wall. 
All forces are to make an all-out attack. No mercy. End of chapter. Chapter 93. The Witch. Balls of rising flame, billowing smoke and cracks of thunder could be seen and heard coming from the walls. The cries of the wounded and dying echoed down the mountain pass as the witch, escorted by her two handlers, strolled without a care. Walking up the gentle slope leading up to the pass, as before, she had experienced many such battle scenes, except normally these scenes were reserved for large city walls or huge fortifications. The death cry of the silver-winged dragon screamed passing her head, its wings whirled with gaping holes, crunchy as it slammed neck down first, its bones breaking as its bounded rider and crew crashed under its weight and the speed of the fall. Mage Durar whistled as he watched the dragon crashed, looking intently at the twitching carcass of the rapt fascination, as he followed the witch and her handlers. Have you ever wondered how something so large and so heavy could fly? Dular cheerfully asked, seemingly oblivious to the chaos and bloodshed around him. The witch ignored his question and continued climbing the slope. The regiment of spears parted way for them as they approached from the rear. The regiment imperial battle standard, a long staff topped off with the figure of a diving dragon, clutched spears within its lettering of the figure nine, showing them that this was the ninth Malifor regiment of spears. The figure of the diving dragon was a crest of the Duke of Malifor. Dular cheerfully greeted the soldiers, who stared back at them with dull eyes and grim faces. Hurry along now, won't want to miss all the fun, yes? They exited the regimental lines and stood about 300 paces away, roughly 150 meters in human measurements, and stared at the walls wreathed in smoke. The approaches of the main gate were blocked with two shattered frames of the monstrous door-knocker siege engines, the frames licking out the wreckage of the fire consumed the constructs. The four dead land dragons, their hearts and eardrums ruptured from the close approximation of the two spell explosions laid at where they had fallen over. Dozens of slave soldiers and imperial troops huddled behind the mass carcasses as they took cover from the spells raining down upon them, ignoring the scorching heat from the burning constructs behind them. All right, do your thing now. Dular gave a theatrical bow to the witch, gesturing with his hand to inviting all of her ballroom dance. She flinched slightly as a whiz buzzed over her head, making her instinctively ducked but she recovered quickly and saw the Ninth Regiment Spears soldier behind her suddenly keel over and vomiting blood, dying as he laid there, his companion staring to drag him away as the rear of another spearman stood in his place. She looked up at the featureless face masks of the two Imperial lifeguards, both watching her without movements or feelings that looked to Dular, who stood watching her from the weird sicko smile. She felt very tired, all of the fighting and killing suddenly, and the burden of protecting her people from the Empire weighing on her very soul down to the Thirteen Howls. If she died, her burden would be someone else. Would she be selfish and wish for death? She looked at the trail of blood underneath the Ninth Regiment. It looked quite simple. Such the spell from nowhere and she would be free of this life. She turned and looked at the walls, willing for another of the defectors to direct her magic at her, to kill her. And as if the gods had granted a wish, suddenly the two lifeguards leapt into action, one of them rising the shield, blocking the spell from hitting her. 
The loud clank of metal impacting the force of the spell sent the lifeguard sliding on his feet backwards for several paces, before recovering while the other hunched down over his shield, covering himself and the witch with it. Sawtooth Mountain Pass Sniper Tower Beta. What the frick? Corporal Drake jerked his head back and blinked his eyes in astonishment. Where did that come from? He blocked your shot with his shield, Private Connett explained. He's good. Very powerful, too. Are you praising your enemy here? Drake cursed as he ejected the spent cartridge from the M3 Mage Killer. That's some fricking OP equipment he has. They appear to be protecting that female. Connett peered into his binder. Great reflexes and intuition, too. They don't know where we are, and of course, they retreated. Damn, I was planning on a round two with them. Drake worked his M3 anti-material rifle smoothly oiled bolt, chambering a new round into the breach. Come on, don't think you can hide in a group of low-leveled minions. There, you see her, the silver head center, fourth file from the front, behind the shields, 430 meters. Got her, Drake whispered, his scope aimed directly at a pretty head. He held his breath, listening to Khan give the command and the wind direction, and was about to squeeze the trigger when she turned her head and looked up directly at him, and smiled before closing her eyes. What the frick? Drake whispered as he worked his bolt again, sending an empty cartridge spinning out. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, 150 meters from the front gate. The witch sensed rather than saw the kidding intent coming directly at her from a great distance. She looked up, and in her mind's eye, she saw a man, with very short ears, lying prone, holding a huge, long tube-like object, pointed directly at her, and she knew what that meant. Her time has come. She smiled at the man, thanking him for her heart for releasing her, and she closed her eyes, waiting for the spell to come. Instead, she heard and felt a blast of wind, followed by a loud metallic clank again. When she opened her eyes again, she saw the lifeguard that had blocked the spell earlier, lying clumped up in a mess of blood on a pile of Ninth Regiment soldiers, missing his left shoulder. She looked surprised and spun around and looked the distance where the strange short-haired man was, wondering why he didn't kill her. Before she can think of anything else, another loud clank had the second lifeguard slipped backwards, his shield heavily dented in the deformed. The lifeguard looked stunned as he recovered, and then his upper torso blew up. The few soldiers directly behind him also suffered the same fate. Exploding into bits of meat and blood flew everywhere. Despite seeing many battlefields, this was the first time she saw someone or lots of people exploding directly in front of her, and she vomited out the acidic juices of her empty stomach. Some of the weaker world soldiers also vomited or even started to retreat citing angry commands from their officials and sergeants. Dular laughed, his eyes crazed as he stood over the mangled body of a lifeguard. Wow, I want this spell so much. He crouched down, poking the gory remains of the body. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Sniper Tower Beta. Target is in the open, 420 meters. Kant looked in the scene of the bino. Good kill on those two tough sons of bitches. No, leave her. Drake tilted his sights up, looking at the angry-looking elf crouching over the dead body. I want that mage. Why don't you shoot that silver-haired girl? Kant pressed. He adjusted his binoculars. I'm not sure. She looked at me in the eye and was ready to die, Drake confessed. I just couldn't shoot her then. 
Kant raised an eyebrow, turning to look at Drake and teased. Someone's in love. Drake rolls his eyes. Yeah, right. Serious time. Let's kill something, then we can talk later. <laughs> sure, Kant sniggered as he returned to the task. All right, target in the center of the infantry square. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, 150 meters from the gate. The witch stared at the chaos happening around her and made a decision. She would escape the bonds of the Empire and fight them to the death. With the power of magic, she was sure that she could deal a huge blow to their forces. Another buzz blew past her head and she turned her head just in time to see Dular flew backwards several paces, his mouth in the shape of an O. Surprise on his face as the lower half of his body was blown away with a powerful spell. The soldiers looked with confusion and fear at the scene, their morale dropping rapidly as they watched one another, high-leveled fighters and the mage getting killed from nowhere. The witch suddenly went down on her knee and her right palm pressed against the rocky floor. The magic circle expanded out, her lips rapidly chanting a spell, and suddenly jagged spikes burst out from around her, ripping into the men of the 9th Regiment. Cries and screams rang out as bodies were pierced and razor-sharp rock spikes. Kill her! An officer in the 9th Regiment screamed, pointing his sword in her direction. The men, finally having a target to focus all their pent-up fear, confusion and anger, roared out a war cry and charged past their spikes, her spears stabbing at her. She slammed her palm down, and another magic circle expanded out. The stone wall punched out, slamming against the foremost soldiers, denting the plate mail and breaking bones and internal organs from the force. They crumpled down, blood streaming out of their mouths, drowning in their own blood and fluids. The rest of the men stood back, stunned by the attack. The witch wasted no time throwing another blast of stone spikes, impaling dozens of men with her attack. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Sniper Tower Beta. Ooh, I'm starting to like your girlfriend, Conch joked as he watched the battle. Ow, that's gotta hurt. Shut your trap about the girlfriend crap, Drake yelled. She turned against the Empire. She must be an ally. I know, right? Conch gave Drake a wink, nudging his eyebrows, and laughed at Drake's expression. All right, let's save your girlfriend. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, 130 meters from the front gate. She was getting exhausted, taking deep breaths and wiping sweat with her head. Her silver hair stuck wildly all over her forehead, making her wish that she had cut it short. She stepped back, dodging another low-level fireball thrown at her from the 9th Regiment support majors and the remaining battle majors from Dula's company. Kicking up a shower of pebbles, she quickly cast a spell on the fly, turning the pebbles into spikes, sending them flying into the raised shields of the 9th. Three meters long axe spears stabbed at her from all directions, wounding her everywhere, casting blood to stain her dust-covered robes. There is where I fall, she thought to herself. Dodging backwards, she clapped her palms together and started a chant, pouring all of her remaining mana into the spell. Just as she was about to finish the spell, a fireball slammed into her, sending her toppling backwards, her magic shield flickering away as it deflected the spell. She looked up to see a semicircle of shields and axe spearhead facing her. She closed her eyes, waiting for the end to come, when a wet slap of something splat against her face. Opening her eyes, she rubbed the wetness of her face, fingers coming away with red of blood. 
and then she noticed the soldier stepping back, the shields raised up warily. On the ground against something, another soldier blew up. His unfortunate companions behind him joined him in painting the scene with red gore. An officer screamed something which she could not catch, as his head and helmet blew off. His upper torso exploding, bits of metal and meat flying backwards, and the ninth broke. Some dropped their shields and spears, lightening themselves as though that they were ran away faster. Another officer yelled for them to stop, only to join the fate of so many others exploding into a bloody mist. She laid back on her back, feeling the wounds and manner burn creeping up on her. She smiled. Wonder who was the rebel mage that saved her? Was it the stranger with the short ears? Before she lost consciousness. End of chapter. Chapter 94 26 Imperial Dragon Corps. York of Tresen was a young man inspiring to be a dragon rider when he grew up. He ran away from his village of Tresen, stowed away on one of the river barges, before jumping off and swimming ashore, reaching the dragon fortress where the dragons were bred by the Empire and where dragon riders are born. To be bonded with a dragon, it was mostly involved luck and of course influence and money. For a penniless youngster, it was just the clothes on his back, he couldn't bribe his way past the dragon handlers. The young dragon hatchlings bonded the easiest during this period. Thus, many noble families sent their scions to be selected, presenting themselves as the best dragon breeds to be bonded. He managed to be picked up by an imperial recruiter, looking for adventurers and brave young men to fly as part of a dragon crew. York signed up immediately, earning a single gold coin for his signing bonus, which he spent on a pair of boots and a short dagger. Odia, he clung to the tightly roped netting secured around the belly of the dragon, the wind screaming in his ears, his eyes and ears protected by the Imperial-issued crystal goggles. He and his fellow crewmates who had eight others sat in the basket on the side belly of the heavyweight dragon called Blue Thunder, with another forty-odd heavily armed and armored fierce-looking soldiers. At an age of twelve, Blue Thunder was still a baby considered by age of dragons. A typical dragon of the Spitfire dragon breed can live up to a hundred and ninety years. Yet Blue Thunder was fully grown. Its head and tail measurement was twenty-three meters with a wingspan of sixteen meters. The dragon rider, or Captain Quan as the crew called him, was the son of some noble whose family bribed his way into the beast selected to enter the hatchery. Captain Quan was just fifteen years old when he bonded with the two-year-old Spitfire Hatchling and named him Blue Thunder, from his thunderous roars and color of his scales. They lived and trained together for nine years before recruiting a crew of further training together with a crew of yet another year. York remembered the months of running and climbing in the cold mountain air, their trainers wanting them to get used to the cold air and high altitudes. Now they were flying into battle, freshly joined the 26th Imperial Dragon Corps just a few months back. His crewmates consisted of him as a part of a four-man rigger team, in charge of securing and nettings and rigging, which constantly got loose by the stress of flying and maneuvers. A sergeant-at-arms in charge of the four gunners who carried a heavy crossbows, the navigator in charge of finding their way, a lieutenant as the second officer, and finally Captain Kwan. York was excited at the prospect of going into battle at the start as where the whole crew. Captain Kwan even bought them drinks back then. 
Now Captain Kwan's face was white with fear, and Lieutenant Fowl was gone. Then one moment he was yelling something at them, and the other he was just gone. Something of the fierce-looking soldiers that sat in the passenger harness at the back and sides of the dragon were also missing. The netting and the rigging were torn and loosened during the stress of the mad dive and dodging maneuvers. Somebody shouted and pointed. York turned and looked, his eyes widening in horror at the right wing of Blue Thunder was ripped and torn, gaping holes appearing in the wing membrane. York turned and looked at the dragon, which breathing appeared to be labored. He then noticed several bleed cracks on the faint scales, and some of the soldiers strapped to the side of the body parts, like arms or legs missing and appeared to be dead or dying. The past ten minutes was like a ride through the thirteen hulls. Their winged dragon, a senior heavyweight spitfire, called a Ravager, suddenly stalled in the air, its magic barrier artifact specifically prepared for this mission, shattered, and while everyone was wondering what had happened, another heavyweight dragon suffered the same situation. When it happened again, everyone realized that it was a long-range magic attack. The flag dragon roared out, commanding the rest of the dragons to scatter from the formation and take evasive maneuvers. But it was too late for the 26th Imperial Dragon Corps Ravager. Something hit the back of his spine, tearing the tail and a large part of his hindquarters out spraying hot dragon blood across the sky. Everyone was shocked by the next ten minutes was hell. Every dragon took flight in several directions, but still, another heavyweight was hit by the spell, sending them crashing down. Then suddenly, the sound of hundreds of bees buzzing past them loudly, when when York looked around, they were already in the situation. He prayed, hoping that this nightmare would come to an end, remembering his parents' words forbidding him from ever to join the army or the Dragon Corps. He wished that he had never run away from home then. The dark stain appearing on his pants and blue thunder slowly tilt and the spiral downwards. Those were alive started screaming. York slowly opened his eyes. He felt that he had been hammered by a troll followed by an orkin. He slowly tried to sit up and found himself dangling at the side of something scaly. His mind slowly refocused and he slowly remembered blue thunders crashing. The hammering sound slowly became roars of thunder and he found himself in the middle of a courtyard surrounded by bodies and bits of parts of things that he didn't want to find out what they belonged to. He tried to unbuckle himself down but his weight was pressing against the buckle so he used his dagger and sawed against the leather slowly parting it from the falling down a short distance to a hard surface. Moaning in pain, he pushed himself against the blue thunder and rested, the constant loud roars of thunder increasing his headache. As he closed his eyes against blue thunder's resting, suddenly someone crouched down next to him. He looked up and found a fierce-looking soldier with scars all over his face next to him. What happened? York asked timidly. Where are we? Boy, we're in the middle of the nest of ribbles, the veteran smiled, just where we wanted to go. Did Blue Thunder land them in their objective? York reached out and patted the hard scales of the dragon. Good work, Blue. You've done well. Ah, that's all good and touching. Now this thing is the only thing keeping us alive from the cursed thunder spells, the veteran said, his head looking in all directions constantly. We need to move, boy, or when those cursed rebels come around with those bloody thunder spells, we will die here. York groaned as he tried to stand up, but his leg was broken. My leg! 
It's broken, I think, he sniffed, trying not to cry in front of the knight. I won't be much help to you, sir. Good lad. The veteran smiled, his fierce expression looking even more kindly. Stay here and don't move. You did your part. Now it's time for this old man to do his. The knight turned and yelled something and getting a response from someone else, which York couldn't see. All right, boy, keep your head down and play dead. The veteran and I cast a quick healing spell on his broken leg. This should help take the pain off for a bit. Th thank you, sir. York looked around at the knight with wonder. See you at the gates of heaven, boy. The vet grinned and stood up yelling a war cry, brandishing his sword and shield. For the Empire! Charge! Other cries and shouts joined them, and the survivors of the crash charged over the body of Blue Thunder, and fire and thunder greeted them. York dragged himself over to the side of the dragon, peeking out and watching his last historic moments of the night's. Domes of protection spells covered dozens of ragged-looking spites as they charged towards the gate, and almost immediately, hundreds and hundreds of puffs of smoke and sparks erupted all over them, and when their protection spells failed, they felt on the spot, no longer moving. York couldn't help but cry, seeing the heroics action of the knights and held old veteran reach the gates, leaning against it and stopping moving. No! Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Wall Beta. Ceasefire, ceasefire! Sergeant James yelled over the gunfire, chopping his hand horizontally, signaling his men to stop firing. Damn, they sure did die hard. He saw the last warrior charging the gate and died as he touched it. Brave sons of witches. He nearly had a heart attack when the dragon slammed down in front of the courtyard, which shook the entire pass. There were some survivors who threw spells at them, which mostly were negated by the defense of ruins and spells built into the walls. His men returned fire, forcing them to take cover under the dead dragon. But that was the last bonsai charge of the hardcore crazy. Suddenly, explosions shook wall beta, and a massive shadow covered the firing slits. James did a quick peek and saw a massive dragon hovering just above the dead kin, spitting balls of fire at wall beta. He quickly dodged as he saw the dragon's head turn his way, feeling the scorching heat and smoke coming from the slits. Get the fireman into action now, he yelled. Fricking dragons, I want one too. Private Lorna had joined the marines of the first batch, picked from the remnants of the Gold Bros army. He was a skeptic about the first, but soon grew to love the magical weapons the humans introduced. He volunteered immediately when the fearsome human Master Sergeant Pike asked for volunteers for a special team called Fireman. He thought it was something to do with lighting a fire, then he wasn't exactly off the mark. Now dressed in a hot and stuffy full-body suit of silvery white material with a full transparent face mark, Lorna and his buddy Private Entor dressed similarly charged out dragging along a heavy hose. He and his buddy aimed up at the dragon spitting the fire at random targets and braced themselves. Just as he was about to pull the charge handle down, the dragon spotted them and with his opening up the wall and spit a ball of fire directly at them. The two of them screamed as the fire covered them, and they kept screaming when the fire had extinguished. Will you two witches please shut the frick up? Pike's voice screamed into the earpieces. You can scream all you want when you get butt-fricked, but spray that freaking dragon now. That's when Lorna and his buddy realized that they were still alive, and then they barely felt the heat at all. 
Gods in all the heavens were still alive. Entor yelled excitedly. Damn, this armor is great. Yes, you dumb fricks. You better wish that you were dead if you make me come over there and tell you to spray that dragon again. Pike's angry voice cut the comms again. Don't make me come and make you scream. Oh crap, both Entor and Lorna cried. Yes, stop, engaging dragon now. They both gripped the hose tightly and shot a spray of thick foam at the confused dragon who roared, trying to spit more fire their way, only to swallow the firefight foam. The choking dragon tried to flap its wings to gain altitude, but the thick foam covered all of its body, and it gave a wet cough before flopping belly down onto the hard concrete courtyard, cracking it and shaking the whole pass. Good work, Pike yelled into the comms. Now spray the fires and put them out. The dragon and the surviving crew and Alvish cargo were all covered in firefighting foam, blinded, confused and bruised from the crash landing. The dragon kept coughing and sneezing, trying to force the foam coating in its throat out. Each time it coughed or sneezed, the crew on board was shaken so badly. The sun were now thrown off its back and the rigging torn in violent sneezes and coughs. Oh, I like this job, Lorna grinned. Firemen are awesome. End of chapter. Chapter 95. Route. Base Colony, UNS Singapore Command Bridge. Captain Blake tapped upon the tactical tabletop with his forefinger, watching the battle raging out the pass from the eyes of the recon UAV. How many freaking dragons do they have? Commander Ford replied calmly. Approximately about a hundred small ones and about ten of the larger ones. Blake sighed. I need to bring forward my plans to Air Force way earlier than anticipated. He turned and looked to saw the Princess Shireen speaking with the communications officer Clara at the side. If a bloody border duke has this much fighting air elements at his disposal, I cannot imagine how much flying dragons the main standing army of the Empire has, Blake said, jabbing his finger up north at the territory of the Empire. But we yet had discovered any fuel source here. Ford raised his concerns. Even using hydrogen as a fuel source, we don't have the industrial capabilities nor the tech to manufacture hydrogen engines. I know, simple combustion engines that we can make, but any further we can research and develop along the way. Blake responded. Damn, I wish we had uploaded the whole Astropedia into the ship's data banks when we were still over Earth's orbit. We can try methane or fuel the alcohol, we just lack the manpower all for these projects. Ford gave some ideas. What are you talking about? Princess Shireen walked over, joining them at the tactical table. The glow from the tabletop highlighted her elfin features, making her look like a goddess. Nothing much, just production and plans on how to handle that. Blake pointed at the screen showing the dozens of dragons swooping over the defenses and some of the larger dragons crash landing into the pass. Oh, she frowned. But you two don't look very worried. She narrowed her pretty eyes suspiciously, making Blake cough and look away. Ford grinned, enjoying the discomfort the captain was having, knowing fully that the captain had some feelings for the princess. Well, we trust Major Frank at the pass will be able to handle the situation easily. Besides Frank as Pike, there won't be any problems, Blake ended. Well, we also will task all of our weapons in support for them if they need it. Hmm, I see, Shireen looked sadly at the battle, but people are dying there. It's a war, either you kill or be killed. 
Blake comforted the princess. Harsh realities of life. Ford smiled and softly walked away, leaving the two of them haloed in the glow of the table, a tiny island of quiet moment for a two, surrounded by the chaos of the command bridge. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, courtyard between the Wall Alpha and Wall Beta. A foam-covered dragon raged and choked, thrashing wildly in the space between the two walls, when a series of pops and explosions riddled all over its body, sending it against the mountainside, before emitting a death rattle as it choked to death, its blood staining the mountainside and pouring around the cracked concrete flooring. Another largely-sized dragon crash-landed beside the dead carcass, barely flopping down with its wings were ripped and torn, the dragon panting heavily, sparks shooting out over the mouth and nostrils with each heavy breath, dozens of figures leaping off its back and magic circles flickering into the life of the newcomers. Specialist Private Hitsu and a hundred of the first arcane tactics and intervention team, Claymore 1, broke open his double-barrel sword or shotgun, slotting in two explosive shells into the open breach and in one motion flipped the barrel up, locking the breach closed. Hoisting the ballistic shield, he looked at his buddy, Specialist Private Loke, armed with the M2 Mage Bitter. Without the bulky silencer, who nodded and gripped the right shoulder with Hitsu with his left hand, his right raising the carbine in a ready stance. Both of them wore surplus armor from the security station, Mark VI right armor modified with several extra plates of armoring with strengthening runes carved into them. The armor plating made them look like large and bulky with pieces of armor covering all the vital parts of their body. Go, Loke yelled, the thumped Hitsu's shoulder hard. If not, he wouldn't be able to feel anything through the heavily armored and padded shoulder plating. Hitsu lifted the transparent ballistic shield made out of Nano's crystal graphite sapphire glass and charged out of the sally port with a wall batter and into the madness happening in the courtyard. The first thing Hitsu saw was a couple of freaking huge dead dragons, their bodies and puddles of blood all over. Smoke and cracks of spells and mage locks echoed loudly in the confined area. The sky had several dragons madly swooping and dodging the fire from the railgun turrets. And it was raining dragon blood. Blood was falling in a light drizzle as the dragons in the air kept fighting despite suffering wounds. A fireball streaked towards Hitsu, who quickly angled the shield up, letting the spell glance off his shield. The three round bursts fired next to his head by Loke, dropping the knight who cast the spell. Hitsu was thankful for the humans and inventing earplugs, or he would have gone deaf from the burst of fire next to his head. As the smoke cleared, they caught the attention of the Empire Knights, bunched up next to the clearly wounded and heavily wounded dragon. Bracing his sword or shotgun against the edge of the shield, he rapid-fired with both barrels, sending two explosive shells which exploded in their midst, sending those without magical protection screaming and dying. He kneeled and reloaded, reloading, making himself a solid cover for Loke, and as Loke fired at stunned group. Reloading, Loke yelled next, crouching down behind Hitsu with his crossbow bolts and fireballs and lightning bolts erupting all around them. Up! Loke yelled as he finished reloading and stood up, returning fire back in calmly single shots. Essen was a veteran Imperial Magic Knight under the command of the Knights of Twelve, serving under the banner of the Duke Sturm, fighting in several campaigns with him over a period of five years. 
The order of the knights came in the morning before the sun was even up. They climbed on board the 26th Imperial Dragon Corps, the Fireborn, and took off with the four other Dragon Corps. All of them were skeptical that the Duke will ever send over a hundred knights in to invade a tiny pass. But everyone kept their peace and followed the orders. And now he understood why Duke Stern sent over a hundred knights into the battle with the rebels. The two strangely fat-armored rebels holding a frenzy-looking glass-like shield crouched in the open ground between them and the walls. Already they had killed or wounded at least half or more of the knights and soldiers just by themselves and with their cursed magical thundersticks. He looked at his squad of three and nodded, knowing for them to be able to advance up to take over the walls, they needed to defeat those two first. Knowing not to underestimate them despite their fat appearance and just the two of them. You and Ern go left, you and me right, Ishin ordered, pointing at the last knights. Go fast, use everything you have to kill those two and rally at the walls. Everyone nodded and started to cast support spells. First was haste, agility up, strength up, and finally endurance up. Go! Charging out from two directions, they sprinted with inhuman speed despite wearing over 20 kilograms of armor and weapons. They charged towards the clumsy-looking rebels and flicked out their swords and their scabbards. Suddenly, the knight charged in front as Vesson toppled down, his throat blown away by a spell. And Essen sensed danger. He raised his shield in time to fault a couple heavy punches against the prized mithril shield. Yet, despite the protection of the shield, the impact shattered his left arm. Gritting his teeth, he dropped the mangled shield and continued charging, moving left and right, his left arm dangling uselessly at his side. Just a few more paces. Hitsu calmly said, I'm on the guys on the left, right side is yours as the two groups of Empire soldiers sprinted out of the two directions. He's fired both rebels again, dropping the shots roughly where he predicted both of them to go, missing one but turning the other into a bloody meat paste with the shrapnel from the exploding shells. Loke tracked the fast moving of the two knights and fired twice, taking down the foremost before switching aimed and double-tapping the next knight. He cursed when the knight that blocked the shots was held in his shield and came up with a knife range, swinging his long sword directly at his neck. Loke sidestepped away from Hitsu and the sword swing, his speed not losing out to the Imperial Knight despite his heavy armor. He raised his heavy armored left shoulder at Pauldron, taking the second sword strike directly, and the knight's sword snapped. He countered with the thrusting his M2 rifle's muzzle out like a spear, aiming for the unarmored throat of the knight and punching through the larynx. The knight's eyes bulged widely, coughing out blood while his good hand gripped the hot barrel, stopping the thrust from going any further. Loke growled and squeezed the trigger, blowing the back of the knight's neck. The gun smoke erupted from the dead knight's gaping mouth and nostrils. While Loke was distracted by the sword swing, the other surviving knight charged at his two swinging a war axe and a doubles-handed chop. It soon rolled out of the way, dropping his empty shotgun and came up on the side and slammed the edge of his shield against the left arm of the knight, denting the armored rear brace and snapping the humorous bone. The knight roared with pain, his left arm useless, and yet he tried to swing the battle axe with his right hand from an awkward angle. Hitsu dodged the attack, its speed had dropped noticeably, and rammed his shield edge against the back of the knight's left greaves, 
cracking the shin bone and forcing the knight down on his knees. Hitsu then ended the fight with a smash of his shield against the edge of the cervical spine, killing the knight instantly. That was satisfying, Hitsu puffed out. Your kill was gross, he commented on Luke's kill, seeing the gore on the muzzle. It's going to be hell to clean later. Sawtooth Mountain, rear wall beta. The remaining heavyweights managed to land or crash here, between the barracks and the admin structures. The dragons spit fire and concrete structures, scorching the grey surfaces. Gunfire and smoke from marines forced back the dragons, and the rest of Claymore 1 decimated the remaining knights and soldiers that landed. Tyria stood over the body of a heavyweight dragon that had just slain, reloading his pump-action shotgun. The damn reptile kept attempting to eat him despite already being half-dead, so he gave it a few shots of explosive shells to eat. It must be because I killed the rider, thought Tyria as he locked the bullet-riddled corpse in the thick blue fancy-looking jacket with gold bridles. The only remaining flight-capable heavyweight dragon tried to take off under the heavy fire and attracted the attention of Gun 2, which sent an armor-piercing fin-stabilized discarding stabbed shot, naining the dragon in mid-fight. The force of the explosion showered the rear base structures and its defenses with dragon gore and blood. The remaining smaller dragons seeing the death scene lost all motivation to continue to fight. They dropped the last of their firebombs and retreated, dodging flak from the guns. The marines defending cheered as the dragons retreated and returned their attention to the sieging army at the front door. Just as Valkyrie 1 and 2 had returned fully rearmed and refueled, and some tech had rigged up some external speakers, blasting right of the Valkyries of the air. The two space haulers turned gunships volley fired their 70mm rockets at the shocked army, each fuel-air thermobaric blast shattering bodies, sucking the air out of lungs and turning the air into flames. Those caught in the afterblast of their eyeballs, eardrums and internal organs ruptured, most of the owls went mad by the sheer destructive power of the rocket salvos and ran screaming away, discarding weapons and armor. Run, blue boys! Right Lieutenant Peter yelled as he looped back his bird, going for another strafing run. The retreat soon turned into a rout as hundreds of Empire soldiers broke formation, ignoring orders from commanders and scrambling to safety of the forest while the radio broadcast was repeating messages calling for Empire to surrender. Soldiers of the Empire, nothing is more confused than to be ordered into war to die or to be maimed for life without the faintest idea of what's going on. Drop your weapons and surrender, please. End of chapter. Chapter 96. POWs. Captain Blake stepped off the near hatch of the Valkyrie, holding onto his peacap as the powerful turbo wash from the turbo props threatened to blow his cap off. He reached out his hand to Princess Shireen, helping her off the flight cabin, and the whine of the engine slowly died down. Major Frank, waiting with the other side of the landing pad, was on the other staff officers, saluted when Blake strolled up to him. Sir and Madam, welcome to Hell's Gate. Frank grinned. His useful face was losing its harshness. I got the whole tour for you. Good job with the battle, Blake praised Frank. You and your men did well holding the pass and rooting the enemy. Frank kept grinning. Yeah, it was a close job, especially when those dragons landed. He led them to the jeep and personally drove. The smoke from the battle of two days ago had lingered over the pass. 
Damages to the structures and defenses slowly became more apparent as they neared the walls with the wailing of the wounded dragons echoing down the mountain from the holding pens. Seventeen dead and a hundred and fifty-two wounded over the week of constant combat, and forty-two needed to have parts regrown in the tank, Frank reported, yelling over the winds as he drove. Intel estimated the total of 17,000 dead on the other side. We also captured close to 400 tons of weapons, armor, and food supplies from the abandoned baggage train. Also another five land dragons and almost 200 war dragons and close to a thousand livestock ranging from bird verums to some kind of pig. A total of 5,000 surrendered and another 3,000 captured wounded. Frank continued, handing over the tablet while driving with one hand. They charged up the rocky road where I was having passed the checkpoint by the marine sentries. We also liberated close to a thousand five hundred slaves. We will need supplies for the prisoners, as the supplies we captured will only be enough for two months. Feeding over ten thousand mouths isn't easy, Frank said as he pulled to a stop and parked the jeep at the covered parking lot next to the heavily guarded complex. Princess Shireen spoke up. I'll see what I can do to supply food for them, but we barely have started growing crops for the season. It will be difficult. Yeah, wait till you see the dragons, Frank said. They eat a lot. Shireen's face turned white. D dragons How am I going to feed dragons and over 10,000 more people? How many dragons do we have? Blake asked, putting his hand on Shireen's shoulder to calm her down. We got two large ones, which were they call Spitfires, and seven medium ones, a breed called Silverwing, Frank pointed to the series of hangar-like structures on the other side. Currently, we're holding them there, under the threat of the monsters' lives. They speak? Blake was surprised. It was the first thing that he knew of such thing. They won't rampage or something? Frank winked. Yep, in common too, and they are surprisingly polite and gentlemanlike. They agree to good behavior and not fight us as long as they save and spare the captains and crew. Seems like they're almost sensible ones here, Blake said, and the remaining Empire forces. We are using the Valkyries to conduct harassing operations on them, forcing them to retreat deeper and deeper into the forest. Also, the 101st and the Marines will be several raiding operations targeting the supplies and ground harassment, Frank added. If they can capture supplies, and we get the Valkyries to pick up the supplies for our own use, if we do not deny them the enemy by burning... Great job, Blake nodded, walking into the entrance set into the mountainside, guarded heavily by marines. Master Sergeant Pikes with Lieutenant Tavar of Intelligence is personally running the screening process of the prisoners. Frank continued his report. We have gotten a truth stone from Magister Thorn. Truth stone? What does it do? Blake frowned, unfamiliar with the object. It's a magical artifact that can detect truths or lies, Princess Shireen explained. The stone changes color depending on the answer given. It's a royal artifact used to test the loyalty of the royal guards. Yeah, Frank nodded, but Tavor found out that they actually detect intention instead of truth or lies. If you intend to be truthful, it shows up as telling the truth, while if your intentions are evil, like telling a lie. The stone glows red. Frank waved the sentries aside as they passed another checkpoint before entering the command banker. So it actually detects good and bad intentions, Blake clarified, looking around the busy command center. Yes, sir, and welcome to the pit. 
She found herself running in a forest, sound beating hooves of soldiers riding war dragons chased after her and her people. She screamed as she watched her people dying, soldiers driving spears into their bodies, and woke up, finding herself in a strange bright room. White curtains blocked her surrounding view, and she could feel so soft mattress and pillows beneath her. But when she tried to move her arms and legs, she found them bound against the bed frame. She looked at her body, and she was wearing some kind of robes. A clear tube of some liquid inside seemed to be stuck to her arm, and her body was covered in bandages. The boundings looked like some kind of grey leather, but with magical runes carved on them, which she recognized to be anti-magic rune. She coughed as her dry throat itched, and suddenly the white curtains parted, and a female wearing strange grey white clothing holding some kind of board looked up at her and smiled. Finally, you're awake. The stranger spoke in common and picked up a jug of water on the side of the table, which she didn't notice at first. The stranger poured a cup of water, and that's when she noticed that her ears were short and rounded. Who are you? she asked. Her throat was parched and painful. Where am I? Here, have a sip, slowly. The short-eared stranger gently fed her the cool, refreshing water as she felt better after drinking more. Don't worry for now, the stranger said and gestured to her restraints. These are for yours and our safety. Please bear for now till we are certain of your intentions. She tilted her head in confusion, wondering what does those stranger meant, her eyes growing heavy as she yawned before falling back into sleep again. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Defense Base, Monster Holding Pens Captain Blake stood before a hangar-like structure. He looked down at the side and saw several similar structures and shook his head, thinking of a time and resources spent on making these in such a short time. A single marine guard saluted Blake and pushed open the side door, letting Blake enter. As Blake entered the holding pen, a strong, musty smell hit him, and as he saw a massive blue-red dragon lying on its side, in center of the pen, eyes closed and snoozing away. Blake circled the sleeping dragon, marveling at the creature, looking at the beautiful blue-red scales and the lights reflected off them. Wow, this guy must weigh at least thirty to forty tons, at least. Several spots of the body had cracked scales with dried blood, most likely caused by gunfire. Its wings were torn and appeared to be repaired up through sticky tape and duct tape. He wondered which marine did that, most likely by one of its original guys. Shaking his head, he returned to admire the dragon. Suddenly, the dragon snorted and opened its golden dinner plate-sized eyes and looked at Blake. It raised its massive head and yawned, displaying an impressive array of sword-like teeth, as long as his arms. The dragon stared unblinkingly at Drake and a long, uncomfortable silence stretched out. Finally, Blake cleared his throat. Hi, my name is Blake. The dragon cocked his head. B-ache. What manner of creature are you? We are humans from a place very far away from here. Blake gave his best salesman smile. Humans. Interesting. The dragon rested its head against its front claws. And? Oh, I just wanted to see a dragon up close. Blake scratched his head in embarrassment. I mean, I've never seen a real dragon before. It's mostly in stalls or CG. That kind of stuff, you know. The dragon looked confused and nodded. Satisfied? Nah. I'm sorry, Blake apologized. I didn't mean to disturb your rest. Blake gestured to the dragon's wounds. 
Damn, he sounds like some ancient Englishman, Blake thought to himself. It's all right, I am your prisoner. The dragon settled down. I have nothing much to do either. I see, Blake pointed at the bench at his side. Do you mind? Go ahead, I'm sure you have some questions for me, the dragon sighed. The other human was always asking questions. It must be referring to Lieutenant Tevar, Black thought. Well, to be frank, I don't know much about your kind, and I'm frankly very curious. Same here, the dragon replied. Oh, where are my manners? My name is Blue Thunder. The dragon rose up and dipped a bow, which Blake unconsciously returned a bow too. Blue Thunder settled back down onto its forearms and asked, Do you have any news of my captain? Ah, Blake remembered Frank's report on the health of the Dragon Cruise. I'm sorry, but he did not make it, Blake replied honestly. Captain, why did you inform him of that? Tabber's voice screamed out at Blake's earpiece. Blake flinched, quickly pulling his earpiece out and rubbing his ears. Damn, thank you for being honest with me, human Blake. Thunder appeared to sink down lower in his forearms. I already had a feeling that he didn't make it. You know the bond and all that. At least I know your people tried their best to save him. Blake felt the urge to go up to the dragon and give it a comforting pat. Blue Thunder's eyes drooled up and looked like a lost puppy. I'm sorry for your loss. It's all right. Lives are lost in wars and we are constantly at the front line. The dragon sighed sadly. I've seen many of my comrades pass away. What are your plans now? Blake asked, as he walked up to the dragon and gave it a pat on its higher arm. Any plans? Plans, Blue Thunder repeated the word. I am your prisoner. Having surrendered, I am submitted to your bidding. Blake looked surprised. Even if we want to execute you, he blurted out. Yes, if not, who will look after us? Blue Thunder raised his head up and looked at Blake with his large, cheery eyes and hissed, We are your slaves now. To the victor goes the spoils. I see. Blake raised both his hands in a calming manner. He looked at the mouth full of teeth directly in front of him, the small sulfur from its breath nearly choking him. But we have no slaves here. Everyone is a free man. Free? Blue Thunder narrowed his eyes. There is such a thing. Of course. We will offer the prisoners a choice. You can either join us or we'll let them go back, Blake explained. We need people, and free men and women work better than unwitting slaves. That is very interesting. Blue Thunder scratched his chin in a very human-like, elvish-like way. Most likely picked up from the crew. I can do what I want. Um, yes, but of course you have to follow the laws laid down by the government. Blake continued to preach. If you are willing to work, we, of course, are willing to accept you. But no one thing. Everyone has to work for their meal. There is no free food in this world. Oh, like a salary. Blue Thunder looked excitedly at Blake, its huge mouth gaping open. I always hear my captain and the crew say that they spend their salary at the pub, or at the whole house, or war house. It scratched its head as it tried to remember the word that they used. You mean a Warhol house? Blake laughed. No, that's not for you. But yes, you get paid, and what you want to do with that money is up to you. You mean, I can buy lots of meat to eat? End of chapter. Chapter 97 Post-Victory 
enchanted forest. Duke Sturm's face was pale as he rode his war dragon hard, pushing it to a gallop faster. The music coming from the sky rose to a fervent night as the singer screamed the lyrics of some unknown heaven-cursed song. War! Woe! Lord! What's it good for? Absolutely nothing. Listen to me! Followed by the explosions going off at the rear of the retreating lancers, the enemy flying beast charged over Sturm's head as he ducked reflexively. His war dragon started to foam at its jaws. Bastard! Sturm whipped his dragon's side, ignoring the gasping cries of the mount. He looked up again, and as the volume of the music rose up again, indicating those cursed flying beasts were back to throw their fireballs at his men. For the past three days, Sturm and the remnants of his forces had been harassed constantly by the enemy's flying beast, which spits fireballs at the frightened troops. He had his remaining mages and crossbowmen forming up an ambush for the flying beast, but it just shrugged off the spells and crossbow bolts, playing the demonic music as it looped back at spitting fire at his troops again and again. Starving and exhausted, the remains of the entire army of Fallowfall, consisting of the 1st, 2nd and 3rd regiments of swords, and the 9th, 10th and 11th, 13th and 15th regiments of spears, 2nd, 5th and 6th and 8th of crossbow regiments, and the 2nd and 3rd lancers, retreated in a disorderly manner through the uncharted forest, many falling prey to the goblin tribes and monstrous beasts living inside the forest. Reports constantly came in either outdated or unclear from the rear guards and scouts as the army was running scared and confused. The remains of the Imperial Dragon Corps had flown away, leaving them without any air cover. Not that it would do Fallowfall army any good. Conflicting reports of rebel soldiers attacking the front, the flanks and the rear kept pouring in, making Sturm disregard them totally. Finally, the cursed music faded away, meaning the flying beast had returned to whatever hell it had come from, and Sturm raided his war dragon in. The poor beast had stumbled and choked as a gasp for breath. Its sides heaving up and down, Sturm jumped off the saddle and stretched himself, his back acting while the inner sides and legs chafed from the constant riding. Gather the commanders and whoever is left, I want the regiments to be back under control. Sturm yelled at his subordinates, Bring me some food and water now. His men dispersed to do the bidding, and not long his manservant came up with a handful of trail bread and a half-empty water skin. My apologies, my lord, this is the best I could find. What? Where are our rations? Sturm growled. I made sure that we had more than enough field rations to last the whole army for at least two months. My lord, we lost a third of the baggage train when we were cheated, and the rebels have constantly harassed us. His manservant explained calmly. The remaining half were abandoned along the way, or were destroyed by the rebels' flying beast chasing us. Damn you! Sturm cursed as he crushed the hard trail bread in his right fist, grinding it to a powdery pieces. Oh, just you wait. I will be back. Sawtooth Mountain Pass Defense Center, the pit. You've been constantly visiting the Dragon Pen, Frank said as he headed towards the meeting room. Anything interesting to share? Hmm, I learned quite a bit, in fact, Blake said. More insight on the workings of the Empire and how they train and breed dragons. So we're going to have our own dragons? Frank grinned excitedly, looking like a kid again. Um, I only saw those in CGs. Maybe. If we can convince the unbonded dragons to our cause, 
Blake smiled. Those whose bonded captains were still alive will only follow the wishes of the captains. Feels like so kind of slavery to me, Frank said. But then again, how awesome is it to fly it? I'm surprised at that their way talk, Blake said. They don't feel so scary. They seem more like a uh, very wise child. You know, Lieutenant Tabor have been up against my rear all day, grumbling about you breaking protocol and all the crap on the dragons, Frank laughed. I've rarely seen him so worked up. <laughs> that was my fault. The dragons were too, uh, polite, and it just slipped out of my mouth when they asked about the fate of their crew. Blake shook his head. Maybe I should leave the interrogation and interviews to the professionals next time. Entering the room, they found Dr. Sharon and Magister Thorm in heated discussion, with Thorm gesturing wildly and his Einsteinish hair making him look more like a madman than usual. If we can harvest the blood from the dragons, we can use it in many alchemical processes. Have you wondered why dragon blood is so rare? Dr. Sharon hissed in frustration. You think that they will let you take a needle and draw their blood just like that? She snapped her fingers in irritation. Hmm, true, but we can drug their food, you know, all that, Thorn grinned. Dr. Sharon rolled her eyes. If it were that easy, don't you think that there would be more dragon blood out there? Dr. Sharon softened her tone when she saw Thorn looking downcast. You told me for the magic in the dragon blood to be potent, it has to be a wild dragon and not bred. That's true, Thorn peeked up. Oh, Captain, greetings. Yo, Dr. Sharon looked around and saw Blake and Frank standing there watching the two of them chatting and quickly rose. Captain? At ease, Blake smiled. So you guys want to get some dragon blood? Didn't we harvest tons of that? Yes, yes, but the blood quality is very low, Thorne said. Seems like the magic from dragons bred in captivity weakens them a lot. Holy fr- Frank coughed. I mean, that was considered weak. Yes, yes, if it was a wild dragon, its powers would at least, say, ten, maybe twenty times stronger. Thorn absentmindedly replied, maybe it's due to the young age. Rarely do bred dragons reach the mature ages of a hundred. Frank nodded at Blake with horror and said, I'm going to have to review my defensive plans again. Hi, has the meeting started? Princess Shireen stuck her head in, her gold pink hair tied in a bun, and she was wearing a formal sky blue formal looking robes. No, come in, Blake smiled warmly. Lately he found himself looking forward to seeing the princess. All right, everyone's here, let's start. Blake nodded to Frank. Okay, I asked for this meeting due to several reasons, Frank said. Supply, manpower, prisoners, and what's next? For supply, I will be requesting from City Hall, he nodded to Shireen, to help catalogue the supplies and equipment that we had captured off the retreating Empire Army. Also, we will be needing your help to provide food to the prisoners, and we also badly depleted our ammunition stalls in that one week of combat, so I would like extra production on the ammunition to meet the needs. Shireen nodded. I'll see what I can do. She turned to whisper to her aide. Next is manpower. So far, as suffered a very little losses, but we have a large amount of wounded both ways. Our priority, of course, is to the men first and then the prisoners. Dr. Sharon, I would like your team full-time assistance in this manner. I'm not sure if the medical supplies will hold out or not. It's not really an issue now, Dr. Sharon replied. I got a few magical healers which help decrease the usage of our medical supplies, but the regeneration tank can only be used so much. I am still working on a substitute for the nanite solution. Okay, next is the prisoners. What are we going to do with them? 
Frank asked. Are we going to let them go or recruit them as well as willing to join us? For the prisoners, release them if they choose to leave, Blake said. No point in feeding an enemy for them. If we keep them locked up or even as labor, we need to spend food and manpower to keep watch over them, and also there is always the threat of sabotage. Everyone nodded at the table. But if we let them go, won't they come back and attack us again later? Shireen raised a point. Yes and no, Blake smiled. If you were given freedom after a life-and-death battle, would you want to return to it again or return to your families? He pointed out. Also, if we show mercy now, their hearts will also be moved, and they would show mercy back at our men if they should be captured. Shireen nodded, but didn't look very convinced. I understand. As for those who are willing to join us, Blake continued, run them through the dependable test. I heard Magister Thorne had loaned us a truth stone. Blake asked, which Thorne nodded. Dr. Sharon and Lieutenant Tavor, I want you two to come out with a list of psychological questions to determine the intentions and loyalty, Blake ordered. Then we let those people in, on a probational basis, on their behavioral and work performance, before granting them full citizenship. For the dragons, if they are willing to join us, we will, of course, welcome them, Blake added. They will be very useful for some of the things that I could think of to help us. Yes, sir, Dr. Sharon and Lieutenant Tabor replied, while the others nodded. Okay, last point. What's next? Frank continued. Currently, two companies of marines are harassing and doing combat sweeps of our surrounding areas in the uncharted forest, supported by the Valkyries. As far as artificial ram created by magic, it is almost impossible to destroy using conventional means. Yes, sir, we're stuck with it. Also, there are reports of increasing goblin activity now that winter is went and truly gone and spring is here, Frank reported. We can't extend our forces too much into the forest and there is a limited amount of ammunition left for our Valkyries. City Hall has started to send men to clear the tilt of the land. We will need protection from the goblins if that is the case, Shireen pointed out. We need to prepare for the next winter. Sir, if I may... Lieutenant Table spoke out. I think that it might be a good time for us to regroup and focus on material needs now. The second batch of marines are going to be trained now, and look at what one battalion can do. Tabor gestured to Frank. We should focus on building our supplies in tech. If we had better equipment, training, and supplies, we can focus on a highly trained and a professional force rather than branching out into over places. Noted, Lieutenant, Blake frowned as he steeped his fingers together. All right, here's what we do. Magister Thorne, continue your research and development with Chief Matt, Gale, and Pike. Dr. Sharon, you continue your R&D with medical practices, with magic, and also training doctors and nurses. Princess Shireen, please work out a plan for supplying the troops and prisoners, and what is lacking or needed. I expect that we will need a lot of material soon, and the dragons, they need a lot of food. Frank, pull back your men for the much-needed rest and repair the defenses at the pass. Also, oversee the next batch of recruits. You also need to provide patrols and protection for the loggers and farmers. Tava, I need a psychological test for the prisoners. Also, continue interviewing the prisoners for information on the Empire. The more we have, the better we can prepare for. Oh yes, I need HR to do up a recruitment and marketing speech for the prisoners. And... Of chapter. Chapter 98 Recruitment Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Rear Marine Base, Hell's Gate. 
Princess Shireen had spent the last day helping out with the medical center, tending to the wounded marines and even the prisoners of war. She also visited the defenses and worked on her public relations, boosting the morale of the troops. Now she was just the sun on its zenith, she stood under the covered platform, facing thousands of prisoners, who all either sat or stood at an enclosed parade square where armed marines guarded them. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Shireen Goldrose. I am the former princess of the Goldrose Kingdom. I am sure most of you are confused or worried about what will happen to you in the coming days. Shireen paused and looked over the crowd who whispered amongst themselves. Most of you are following orders from the Empire in waging a war here, if not every one of you would still be enjoying the comforts at your home. We do not blame you, but your masters. My country was brought into war it did not wish, and it was conquered by the Empire, and yet the Empire still persists in destroying all the remains of my people. I know some of you also come from conquered lands, and the only way for you to survive is to join the Empire. Shireen's voice echoed out over the broadcasting speakers. Here, we only wish to be left alone, to live in peace and freedom, but we are willing to fight and defend for that peace. In the traditional way of the new world, losers in battle will become slaves or subjugated to whims of the winner. We will offer you two choices. One, you join us on probation and after a period of predation is over, you will be a part of us. The whispers and muttering rose louder as the crowd started talking amongst themselves. Two, you will be released. You are free to go where you want to go. You will be given a few days of food and a simple weapon for defense, and that is all. Shireen continued, You have one day to make your choice. Those that are worried about their families and yet want to stay, we will find ways for them to join you here for a better life. Shireen promised, We protect and look after our own. The crowd burst into a discussion as she finished her words. Some yelled, wanting to know more, while others yelled pro-Empire slogans and insults. One day later, you will be asked to make your choice. Think about it carefully. Shireen stepped off the platform and into the hot sun, following her raid and the others head to the waiting jeep. What's next? Shireen asked as they sat down inside the cloth-covered jeep. You have a meeting with the medical staff in the medical center with Dr. Shireen in 20 minutes. Her raid replied as the driver drove off towards the command center. Sawtooth Mountain Pass Command Center, the pit. Why didn't you do the speech or say something yourself? Major Frank asked as he and Captain Blake watched the live feed from the display on the princess talk to the parade square. The speech from the HR dude was pretty bad. The speech is so-so. Anyway, we are too alien to them still, Blake shrugged. Besides, it's always nice to have a pretty face do the recruitment talk, yes? Is that why you joined the Navy? Frack Ned panned. Of course, Blake grinned. Have you seriously seen any female Marines? Frank groaned, tired of the stupid joke. We do have females in the Marines, you know. <laughs> of course, of course, Blake winked. Well, the speech ended when we will see tomorrow who is willing to join us. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, POW Holding Camp Charlie. In one of the Empire-issued tents, the large group of Orkins huddled together. What does everyone think about the joining the rebels and strange humans? The bald, grey-skinned Orkin questioned the group of Orkin tongue as he gazed at the band leaders involved. The whole party had scars and freshly healed wounds all over their bodies, as they were picked up and held as prisoners after the battle was over. Most of them had fainted or could barely be moved when the army of the Empire was routed, 
close to 200 of the Orkins were picked up by the Marines and dropped off at the POW holding camp. Now, after the speech from the rebel ex-princess and the humans willing to recruit people, they were honestly tempted by the offer. They know that if they returned to the tribes they would suffer humiliation and scorn from their own people for falling into the enemy hands. Mm, I don't mind. If we can have those loud thunder sticks to play with, someone yelled, and with almost all the Orkins grunted in agreement, Make big boom, I like. The bald grey Orkin nodded. So, all in agreement. The Orkin growled and grunted in agreement. Done that, but tomorrow we shall be part of the rebel human tribe. All over the five POW holding camps, discussions amongst the Empire soldiers were ongoing constantly. As they debated, they would stay or leave, or if there was a trap or something. The discussion soon split the camps into three groups. Those that were willing to stay, those that were willing to sit and wait, and the last group who were against the idea of staying. The next day, the strange, clothed rebel soldiers opened up the gates of the POW holding camp Alpha, letting 2,000-plus prisoners parade square. As they were herded into the square, they saw two gates leading to other places which they could not see. This time, instead of the princess, it was a grizzly-looking old-timer, dressed in the same strange patterned uniform, addressing the crowd from the race platform. All right, listen up, I'm only going to say this once and once only. The soldier bellowed, his voice echoing down the parade square without the need for any magical assistance. Those who are willing to stay, enter the green gate on my right. He pointed to the gate to his right with the green-colored banner hanging on the sides. Those who want to return to the Empire, enter the red gate on my left. And he repeated his gesture, pointing to the left gate with the red banner. Now form up in an orderly manner, do not push or rush, disobey and suffer consequences. He warned, glaring at everyone. Now form up. The crowd looked at each other before someone timidly walked up to the green gate, and soon a steady stream of people started to be processed through the green gate, while others scorned a treacherous rest, heading out through the red gate. The whole process for the five camps took almost the whole day. Those willing to stay were then returned to the holding camps, while those they wanted to leave were each given a five-day ration pack, and every group of five were given a single dagger, a sword, a spear, a shield, and a bow with ten arrows, and pointed down the slope towards the direction of the Empire. The wreckage and the bodies of dragons and soldiers were long removed by the prisoners, but the stench of blood and voided excretions lingered strongly under the hot sun. A warning was given to those that wanted to return if they remained within the sight of the walls, they would be shot on sight, with several warning shots given off, scaring those to find men off into the forest. Finally, as night falls, the last of those wanting to return to the Empire had vanished into the sea of trees, and the base slowly returned to a normal activity. So, tomorrow we will start the process of those staying... Captain Blake said, Make sure no spies or assassins are hidden in this time. Yes, sir, Lieutenant Tavar and Master Sergeant Spike responded. We estimate it would take almost a week, our week, not theirs, to process everyone. Blake nodded. There were almost 4,000 who decided to stay. In fact, many expressed concerns about leaving their families and skepticism on whether the humans could deliver their promise of bringing in their families from the Empire. Well, the dragons are simpler, Major Frank added. Blue Thunder is willing to sign up with us so far, two of the Silver Wings without their masters. 
Sadly, none of their remaining crews except one kid is staying with the dragons. Hopefully, that kid knows enough of handling dragons than us. Of course, none of us, including the Gold Rose people, knows anything about dragon care. On the interesting side, we have more than 200 orcs that are very willing to join us. In fact, they all specifically requested to be part of the military force. Something about bangs and booms, Blake grinned. Well, Major, they're all yours. Ooh, orc marines! How cliché. Rank rolled his eyes. I hope they are not as dumb as they look, but they will make good shock troops and heavy gunners. What are you planning to do with the dragon, sir? Marched the Sergeant Pike said curiously. Gunship dragons are anti-air support. Oh, I was thinking of them being an aerial recon. The L.I. UAVs badly need some downtime for servicing and maintenance, or we'll lose them forever, Blake said. Blue Thunder could double up as a rapid troop transport or a heavy cargo lifter. You think they'll be willing to? Frank inquired. We don't even know how to control or even manage them. We will have to create an air force to manage all the dragons and air units in the future. But now, we'll just learn as we go, Blake answered. Take things one step at a time, for now. So, we do have an interesting character who wants to join us. Tavor spoke up. May I? He gestured to the display. Blake nodded and sat back. Tavor fiddled with the display and soon the screen showed a portrait of a pale-looking female elf with silver hair and a hospital gown lying on a hospital bed. Her name is Irisval von Eisten and is currently held in a heavily guarded isolation ward at the medical center. Tavar played the video next, replaying back the videos of the battle days ago. We suspect that she is the culprit for the creation of the earthen ramp here. He played the appearance of the earth forming a ramp in slow motion, and in this video, apparently due to our marine snipers, the death of those two creepy-looking masked knights, she turned against the Empire. Another video shown the silver-haired elf casting spells against the Empire forces. According to her statement, she was held against a will, using the threat of termination of her people that she was forced to work for the Empire. Tava continued. She stated that due to the deaths of her handlers that she decided to fight against the Empire. Apparently, she said, and I quote, sick and tired of fighting and all the killing, end quote. Can she be trusted? Blake asked the most important question. Well, she passed the psychological profiling and true stone tests we gave her, Tava shrugged. Well, if she turned out to be a sleeper agent, it would be hard for us to keep tracking her all the time. So unless she wants to prove her loyalty in one way or another, I say that she's a keeper. Blake nodded. What are her skills? She said her power involves earth and magic. The Empire mostly used her powers to destroy enemy fortifications or create gaps, allowing them to break through, Tabor answered. So she's like some sort of magical combat engineer. Frank raised an eyebrow at Tabor, who coughed and nodded. Interesting, Brake looked at Frank and smiled. Well, you got yourself a combat engineer now. End of chapter. Chapter 99. Dragonite Crystal. As the week passed by peacefully, the damages of the past were repaired and most traces of the battle were cleared, except for some bloodstains still lingering behind despite some rain. First Marine Battalion, 2nd Company slowly emerged from the forest edge. Finally, after more than a week of combat patrols and sweeping the area of any remnants of the enemy soldiers, their prisoners that were released a week before, had ended their week-long patrol mission. The tired marines cheered when they saw the wall in the distance and picked up their pace. 
marching in lines of two as they climbed up the slope. Suddenly, with a flag of wings and dragons swooped down over the marines, sending them diving for cover. The marines yelled, shouting, Aerial contact! The dragon flared its wings, beating furiously to hover over the spot that the marines who raised their machelocks found the dragon was actually dressed in armored barding, the counter-shaded digital camouflage scheme, all dark above except for the multi-scale pattern at the edges. It crackled out something suspiciously like laughter before flapping its wings away, heading towards the forest as it went to aerial patrol. Damn, fat lizard! The marines yelled insults and shook their weapons at the dragon flying away. Goddamn Air Force pukes! All right, fun's over, the sergeants ordered as the men continued their walk back. I want a shower! The massive, repurposed cargo doors opened up in the oil tracks, granting entry to the weary company. They noticed several changes made to the defenses, such as dozens of check hedgehog laid along the slopes, which served to prevent siege engines from being pushed up. As they threw through Wall Alpha, they saw the sides of the mountain were being flattened and the beginnings of a concrete towers and bunkers were being constructed. Finally, leaving behind Hal's Gate after passing through Wall Beta, the men were dismissed back to the barracks. Sawtooth Mountain Pass, Defense Command Center, The Pit Attention on deck, the Marine on duty called out as Captain Blake entered the staff meeting room leaving the room and closing the door behind him. At ease, people, Captain Blake gestured to everyone to take their seats. Okay, what's today's agenda? He looked around the room at the display screen showing the people's images. Most of the command staff were present at the meeting room, while those not physically here were present via video conference from the ship's meeting room. Sir, Commander Ford spoke up from the displays, Today will be the briefing on our actual current material and supply situation and future plans on how to handle the new growth and our stance against the Empire. Great, Blake rubbed his hands. Let's start. Quartermaster Chen's image on the display screen flickered as he stood up and said, So, our current material needs far outstrip our production capabilities, be it munitions, weapons, runestones, or even clothing. Our fabricators are simple factories and barely able to keep up with the demand of our current rate of consumption. We are lacking many vital resources such as nitre, copper, zinc, and even our stocks of salvage steel is dwindling. We need to secure sources of resources. Even with the iron and crappy steel that was looted from the Empire Army, it's still barely enough. Chen's face was full of worry as he gave his report. Princess, Blake called out, how are the mines for the other resources of copper, zinc, and iron we found? Slowly, my lord, Shireen's image and the display replied. They have been several reports of goblin activities going on the south and the new mining locations. We are still trying to secure the area. Captain, Major Frank spoke up. I have sent another company of marines to sweep the goblins out of the woods, but it takes time to ferret out the sneaky greenskins. Work with the Air Force on this, Blake suggested. Get the dragons to help sniff out the goblin nests. Frank nodded and sat back down, casting a look at the newly promoted Flight Lieutenant Commander Tommy, who was taking the role of Air Force Commander. Returned a nod to Frank. Brood production is still ongoing, Shireen spoke next. We, um, stored the dead dragons and the meat yield from them was more than enough to sustain the population needs for meat for a couple of months. From the humans proposed to use the dead dragons as food, Magister Thor nearly had a fit. 
while Shireen was kind of put off by the whole idea. But when she'd first tried to drag and stake, cooked with a human ship, she changed her mindset almost immediately. And the fact that the other living dragons didn't really mind them eating their kind also halt. As to them, dragon's meat was meat. They said that all things followed a natural order. The strong prey on the weak. The designated farmlands have been cleared, thanks to the wondrous vehicles and the planting has begun. We implemented the land lease scheme with the citizens, granting parcels of land to anyone willing to farm the land. Farm equipment was loaned to the farmers at 25% of the harvest of the period of two years. Shireen looked directly at Blake and gave him a warm smile. Response was great. We currently have over 800 hectares of land being cleared and farmland right now. It should be more than enough to support our needs with surplus when the harvest comes. Most of the ex-slaves and soldiers are farmers to begin with, Shireen continued. Once they are cleared to work, we can increase both our mineral, materials and food production greatly. Good work, Blake praised Shireen, earning a sly look from Ford, whom Blake ignored. And we have some good news, Shireen beamed. If the saltpeter mines, the miners found a large deposit of dragonite crystals. Dragonite crystals. All the humans looked at each other with a confused look. Magister Thor nearly jumped out of his seat, almost pressing his face against the display screen. Dragonite? Calm down, Magister. Can you all explain what this is? Blake gestured to Thorn to calm down. Dragonite is a very rare mineral, Thorn explained excitedly. It is susceptible to be formed from the bodies of dragons after many, many years. How does it look like? Blake narrowed his eyes and it vaguely felt as something very familiar. The rest of the humans also leaned forward. Oh, it looks like some sort of dark red crystal, like a ruby, Thorne nodded to himself, but the magical powers it possesses. What are its uses? Frank asked next, while Blake was slightly disappointed that it wasn't a crude oil that he was expecting. Hmm, it has many properties, like highly flammable, able to increase magic usage and explosives too. Thorne lost it out what he could think of. It is quite a rare find. The ancient scrolls do speak of them using as a fuel to power their floating castles. Fuel? Blake's eyes were lit up with the word. He rubbed his chin and he looked at Ford meaningfully, who smiled in understanding. How much trouble would it take to mine it? Blake asked. Is it dangerous? Mm, no, and yes, Shireen replied. It can be mined like how you mine ores, but it is flammable. We have to use special tools to extract the dragonite crystals out. Says sparks could ignite it, causing an explosion. Then won't the Irishal girl be of use? Blake asked Shireen. She pondered the question before answering. I believe she should be a great help if she truly is a geomancer. Awesome. Blake grinned widely. We'll talk in detail on this later. Next, military. Master Sergeant Pike stood up and said, Ammunition consumption is at an all-time high. Most of our ready stockpile is badly depleted. We couldn't sustain another wall-out siege like before till ammunition production replenishes our current needs. Under weapons development, R&D are still ongoing with manned portable mortar system. We do have a simple prototype, but we actually need more production of gunpowder for the gun's munitions. The M2 Mage Spitter has been proven in combat during the week before. So large-scale production can begin once the 101st submits their comments and reviews on improvements of the weapon, Pike continued. Also, the new gunpowder mix of adding powdered manastone has vastly improved the force of the gunpowder by a large 
It'll be very useful with a high explosive component. Next, the experimental explosive shells for the thermobaric rockets have also proven to be quite effective. So we will refine those to being mass-produced as long as we have the raw materials for them. Pike paused and looked at Magister Thorn's screen. The stores of mana stones we captured from the Empire are all that are left as of now. We are seriously lacking mana stones of all types. We need to find a source for those fast. A mana stone can actually be used for many years, Thorn explained. Cutting the stones into wafers and constant usage in the mage locks are burning them out faster than we can replace them. Master Thorn furrowed his brows. Well, the only source of mana stones are harvested from beasts and monsters from the land. We used to have guilds that sent out requests for mana stones to be harvested, and those are typically taken off by the adventurers. So, we will require teams of men to go hunt beasts and monsters for the stones, Blake asked. Isn't it a bit too ineffective? Well, demands of mana stones ain't high previously, Thorn pointed out. Well, that is the only way to obtain more stones, unless, of course, you raid the Empire stalls for them. Got it. I will think about what we can do, Blake scratched his chin. Pike, I need weapons R&D to focus on making a proper fuse, rather than using mana stones as a disposable fuses. Blake then leaned back against the cask. What's next? Our patrols had spread out to a distance of 50 kilometer radius from the past and found no traces of the enemy soldiers. Frank said next, with the newly recruited dragons, we are using them as aerial recon while the UAVs are taken offline for maintenance. The two silver wings had an endurance of roughly 2,850 kilometers per day, or even as long as an adequate food, water, and rest is given, Tommy said. Their average cruising speed is roughly 142 kilometers per hour, and their sprint speed jumps to 210 kilometers per hour, but they could only keep that up for roughly 20 minutes or so. They can keep going non-stop on their cruise speed for 20 hours a day before needing to rest and properly feed. The lesser are the weight, the faster and further they can go, Tommy said. The largest Spitfire could fly up to 30 hours non-stop, while his cruise speed is roughly 120 kilometers per hour, and the sprint speed is 180 kilometers per hour. But the Spitfire can carry up to its own body weight and cargo as long as it's distributed evenly along its body, while the Silverwings can only carry up to a third of its own weight. So far, the Dragons are performing recon patrols around the pass and flight trials to determine their full abilities, Tommy continued. Also, we've put up several recruitment notices for pilots or crew for the Valkyries and the Dragons. He sat down as he finished his report. Okay, all done, Blake looked around. Okay, now for the Empire. I want, I want us to stay on a lower alert level, but make no mistake, people, we are at war. Blake stood up, his arms leaning on the tabletop. I want intelligence on the Empire. Blake turned to the display, showing the map of the land pointed. I want a team of intel gathering units to insert here, pushing into the borders of the Empire to collect information. For this, I would like to send a hundred and first in. Communication rally points will be established and seeded along the mountain ridge and the forest for intel team to communicate with us and also for future usage. Blake turned to Frank and Tavar. I want a plan of action by the end of the week. It is time to hit back and we need to know how. End of chapter. Chapter 100. Mines of Seacliff. A couple of half-tracks rumble down the unpaved road along with the scenic route of the ocean, ferrying miners to their destination at the Seacliff mining facility. 
It resolved one Aston who sat nervously in a padded seat, staring wide-eyed at the moving scenery flying past her window. When she woke up from her heated tent, she found herself questioned by a strange short-eared male wearing some kind of uniform, after which the healer came in and told her that she had collapsed due to magic exhaustion and minor blood loss. The next few days, the same strange male calling himself Tavor made her answer strange questions and look at weird pictures, and she later found out the truth stone was used down her while her questions were strange human questions. She told them everything she knows and what they wanted to know, like how her Aston family was a warmer cronked nation and her family held the bloodline of elementalists, which, when the holder of the Aston bloodline awakens, has the power to control an element type. The Empire was greatly interested in using their bloodline to wage war against the whole world. In exchange for the lives of her family, she forced herself to fight the Empire Wars. At the start she resisted, but when the fingers of her younger siblings were given to her and each day that she refused, she caved in. Now she hopes that the Empire still thinks that she died here at the edge of civilization. Her belief in the humans was raising with each day as she saw the way things were happening and magical things work here. She firmly believes that if one day her family could be saved, it'll be with the help of the humans. Now that she sat in an unadorned form-fitting and unfamiliar uniform in light grey tones and scandalous skirt that ended at her knees, showing off her calves, she looked at the piece of paper in her hand, which had perfectly printed letters in common and English telling her to appear in the mining station with directions and information. She folded the precious piece of paper carefully and slipped it into her only bag issued by the government with a few possessions. Finally, after an hour of travelling, both the vehicles pulled up before a heavily fortified compound. The metal grill gates crawled open as guards in black armour waved the vehicles in before shutting the gates. Eris Valls followed the group of burly and friendly miners down to the vehicles and did a slow turn as she took in the view. Squat buildings lay tidily on the side, surrounded by a grey wall with a tower of fixed intervals. Several arcane machines sat under the shed with what looked like a pair of metal strips on the ground exited from the huge barn-like building with several tall round chimneys that gave off clouds of smoke. Her eyes followed the thin metal strips as they led into the side of the sea cliff, and into the gap hole of the cliffs. The compound walls ended next to the cliffs, with those metal wires she remembered seeing during the Battle of the Pass. Four large, strange-looking windmills spun rapidly against the sea breeze, and she wondered why they need mills here. Miss Aston, somebody had called out to her as she looked around at the compound, turned around and saw a middle-aged suntan male in a red jacket waving at her. I am pretty officer Letts, in charge of construction and mining. He put on his hand and for her to shake. Please call me Ariswell. She gripped his hand and greeting, learning that the form of greeting from observing humans in the past week. I was told to come here and help with some construction and mining. Yes, yes, Letts smiled, warming up to the pretty lass. I was told to welcome you here. Come, I'll show you to your room first, and then a quick tour of the facilities. The room assigned to her was overlooking the seaside, a large enough for a single bed, a desk, a chair at the side, and a cupboard. A simple bathroom was also included. She had learned how to use the bath facilities while she was under the healer's care. Let's waited patiently in the room while she looked over her new lodgings. 
and next showed her the communal canteen, kitchens, and the recreational room. Following that, he brought her to the offices, saying that she will be stationed at the office next to his during office hours, unless that she was on site. Work hours start, start from 9 in the morning and ends at 7 in the evening, while a midday break for an hour and a half for lunch. Next, Letts led her to the place which he called the locker room, where he said equipment for going into the mines are stored. He looked at her uniform and said, Hmm, we need to get you some work clothes. Don't want to dirty your uniform if you wear that into the mines. She was given a pair of slightly oversized overalls and work boots, which she took as a few minutes figuring out how to wear it in the changing room, after which Letts assigned her a locker and told her to place her uniform on the other things that she didn't want to bring into the mines. She was also given a safety helmet with a magical device that can light up an area, a handheld magical communications tool and a face mask. The humans must be very rich, she thought, then she was carefully clipped the communication tool onto her belt, mimicking Letts. Letts taught her how to operate the communication tool and lump on her helmet. After asserting that she was proficient enough, he led her out into the building and towards the barn-like structure. Inside, dozens of workers were pouring cartloads of soil into large vats, smell of crap and urine overpowering the workspace. Remembering her face mask, she put it on and breathed deeply, then noticed that Letzer was already wearing his mask and grinning at her through it. Come, this is where we process the soil and dig out the nitrates, Letz explained. We dig the soil out and transport it down with carts and those rails and tracks and we pour them into those vats to pour water in. We leave them there for several days for the nitrates to get into the water, before pouring the water out and boiling them. He points to over for you workers dressed in white frocks and masks, stirring the vats with sticks. We add in wood ash and a mixture and boil off the water. The remaining mixture is still then sent off to the gunpowder mills to be further processed. I see, Irishwell replied, only understanding half of what Letts said. <laughs> Don't worry about all the technical stuff yet. Letts gave a good-natured laugh. You will learn it all in time. Next, Letts led her down towards the mining cave, where several carts rumbled down into the tracks towards the processing plant. Remember not to walk within the yellow line. Letts pointed to the ground, where the lines painted in yellow next to the tracks. He bowed the yellow line and walked along the designated path, because those carts may just come out of the caves at any time. Just as he finished saying that, a cart came barreling out, filled to the brim with soil and rolled down towards the plant. As they entered the mines, Irishwell immediately found that the caves were brightly lit, which is different from what she knew of, as she had some experience helping out in mining and running with her magic that she was in the Empire's service. Dozens of lamps giving off white light hung from the ceilings with cables and wires secured to the walls of the cave. Something like music was echoing down the tunnels, and voices of the workers could be heard singing and laughing as they worked. Now this way, walk your step. They headed downwards for almost thirty minutes as Letts pointed out details and giving explanations along the way, before coming to a dead end. There was a fissure in the wall and Letts kneeled down and shone a light at it into the crack, letting Irishwal see what was inside. Look, can you see that? Letts' face looked like an eerie and the light cast shadows on his features. Irishwal lowered herself down to peer at the crack and saw the passageway inside. The walls in the passage glowed red and fist-sized crystals reflected the light from Letz's magical torch. Oh my, are those dragonite crystals? Uh-huh, 
And they are beautiful, Let's replied. Now here's where we need your help. We need you to help and expand the hole here for us to mine the crystals. Erishwal stood up and patted her hands and her knees and turned to her lamp, walking in a circle around the area as she looked around the cave. Hmm, it shouldn't be a problem. You know we can't use tools to widen the passageway, as they might explode from a spark, Let's asked. So we need you to do this nice and safe. I understand, Erishwal said. Do I do it now? Now, let's look startled. Don't you need to repair or something? Erishwal laughed, her laughter echoing down the tunnel. No, no, it's very simple. You just want to widen the hole larger enough for people to enter and use those carts of yours, yes? If it's possible, of course, let's nod it excitedly. You can do that. It's easy, Erishwal smiled and placed her palm against the rock wall and started to chant softly. A brownish-hued magic circle appeared over her palm and flickered to the spell completes. The wall slowly crumbles like falling ashes into the floor and an opening large enough for the jeep to pass through appears. Soft red glowing stone through the small mound of crumbled rock dust. Ishwal gently sweeps away the dust and picks up the dragonite crystal the size of an egg and held it out towards Letts, who looked at it with an open mouth and expression of surprise. She giggles. You humans have never seen magic before, she teased. I weathered the rock into dust so that there would be no damages to the surrounding area. Speechless, Les shook his head. Seriously, not till we came to this planet. You really broke down the rocks into soil, he blurted out. Irishwell raised her eyebrows and kept the tiny nugget of information in her mind. Yes. So, is this good enough, she asked. Oh, yes, yes, Let's yelled. Oh my god, you're wonderful. He grabbed Irishwal and hugged her, spinning her around in joy. This is so amazing, thank you. Irishwal was very surprised with the manhandling, but she felt warm inside. It was the first time since she'd sided with the Empire that someone praised her and thanked her sincerely. She quickly looked away, hiding her tears forming in her eyes and quickly said, Let's see what's inside. Oh yes, wait, I need to report this first. Let's quickly pulled out his walkie-talkie and started to communicate with the mining control team. Irishwal stepped over the pile of rock dust and looked down in with the help of the headlamp. The passageway stretched out far into the distance with several other tunnels branching away. She found fossilized bone edged with crystals, jagging out from the rock surface and even ground that she walked on was covered in dragonite crystals. The passageway ended in a huge cavern where the sight shocked her, as hundreds and hundreds of bones of dragons laid all over the cavern floor. Her lamp lighting up the dragon-like crystals formed over the bones and the surface of the cavern, casting an eerie red hue on the entire area. But that shocked her the most was not the dragon-like crystals or the bones of the dragons. It was a door. A plain and simple-looking door sat at the end of the cavern, her headlamp shone directly on it. Oh my, a dungeon! End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.